Airline Pilot Guy episode 374. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 422 at the Philadelphia 201 Hotel. Today's show is recorded on the 6th of May, 2019. In today's episode, a Boeing 737 with 140 people on board runs off the end of a runway into a river. And a Tunisier A320 misses a go-around instruction and lands with vehicles on the runway. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plain Tales, the court of public opinion. So get all settled in, tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 374 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and cover your feedback. And joining me from his studio in the English countryside... Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Oh, lovely to be with you again, Jeff. It's uh, a little bit late at night. I may not be able to stay the whole hog, but I'm really looking forward to a good show. Excellent. We're looking forward to it as well. And also joining us, we've missed him. From his studio near the Concord Covered Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello there, guys. How you doing? It's great to be back on the show and uh, looking forward to a great show as well. Although, uh, sad to see Nick if he leaves early. Yeah, well, who knows? Maybe we'll just make it a, a shorter Short show. show. I don't know. We'll see. All right. Excellent. So, uh, Steph Ill, <laughs> Ill, Steph will be joining us today. She is en route home from her work. And uh, when she joins us, we'll, we'll introduce her at that, at that time. All right. How has everybody been doing? Uh, Dana, let's start with you because it's been a while since you've been on the show. Yeah, I was uh, busy with that uh, 12 out of 13 days in a row. Made it through it. Uh, almost didn't make the uh, last round trip, but the reroute gods had smiled kindly upon me for change. Instead of having a two-hour and 38-minute sit in Atlanta waking, waiting for my last round trip all the way up to Milwaukee and back, got a reroute message that we had about 33 minutes on the ground and that we are going to Miami instead uh, right away. Um, so that made it possible because I, would just, I was hitting the wall. Uh, I knew I was hitting the wall, so I probably would have had to fatigue out on that Milwaukee trip because I was just not going to have enough energy to stay up until midnight again. Uh, and I was, I was just, I was starting to get, get to that point. So in, in fairness in the fatigue assessment, I was getting there and I knew where I was going. Uh, but fortunately, uh, they rerouted me and I didn't have to, 
do that. So, and I don't like to do that as well as what I did uh, this week. I, uh, with all that work, uh, had three things happen to me that had actually caused me to call in sick, which I almost never do. Um, one of which is, uh, being on the airplane that much, I, I don't know if it contributed or whatever else, but I came down with, uh, I wouldn't say it's a nasal infection, but certainly with all my allergy medications, it still affected me. So I ended up with uh, some my ear issues, pressure, you know, I couldn't equalize. Um, uh, next couple of days, my ears were all clogged up and it's giving me a slight uh, sinus headache. Uh, so I had that going on. Being in, in the airplane that much, uh, my, uh, my uh, back was hurting. Uh, pretty substantially. Um, I don't know. It's probably just from sitting in that seat for so long, for so many days. So that was bothering me. Fortunately, uh, a little Advil with the uh, the uh, nasal uh, decongestant has has worked. But I wasn't I wasn't up to go leaving on Saturday. He just couldn't do it. I didn't feel that good. So uh, that's all that's been going on with me. I'm now recovering. I'm still a little uh, nasally, a little bit. Uh, congested in the chest i think still um so that's what's been going on with me uh had a real good conversation about my apple watch this morning it's kind of interesting and not change the topic a little bit but uh, I'm, i'll get you'll see why where i get there how i get there um but my phone had cracked my new i10 i iphone 10 max had cracked with not being dropped or anything it just cracked the screen cracked so I don't know if they're having a problem because then I noticed this past week that my new brand new iPhone 4 watch, or the iWatch 4, had a hairline crack in it as well. So I had a very nice conversation with the Apple rep today who was sending me out the new uh, phone. But as I was talking to him, uh, he he asked me for my email and I gave him my email address. And he said, well, does that mean you're a professional pilot? He says, what do you, what do, you do? You fly... Do you fly Cessnas? Do you fly twin engine? I said, no, a little bigger than that. He said, well, what do you do? I said, I'm a, I'm a pilot for a major airline. Oh, my God. I love airlines. I, I love airplanes. I've always wanted to fly. Flew Cessnas, blah, blah, blah. You know, went through the whole gamut. So you can imagine this guy is a techie type of guy, works at Apple in tech support and loves aviation. So guess what I told him about? A little podcast. So he is looking forward to it. His name is John. If he happens to tune in, now uh, we've actually talked about him, and uh, he was very excited to to tune into our show. So. John, you Apple technician, we oh, love we love Apple, Apple technicians. Apple. Yes, yes, we love yes. We, we're <laughs> Apple people. <laughs> Every yeah, one of us yeah. has, has nothing but Apple we're, products. Yeah. <laughs> I took yeah, my here Apple we go. watch Apple, off. Apple, Apple, Apple phone. Everything uh, uh, two here. iPads iMac. I have all these uh, screens MacBook in front Pro. of me. Yeah. <laughs> They're all Mac, iPad, MacBook Pro, MacBook yeah. Pro. Yeah. So, you know what we're saying here, John? Come on. Yeah. Pick, yeah. pick it up on yeah. it. What yeah. we need is a little bit of this. <laughs> a little bling. Yeah, some of that. Yeah, some of that APG discount. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after all, every, every single new one, one of my Apple products as of recent has all officially now been replaced. Because ah. my computer with the beer, <laughs> my brand new iPhone, and now my iWatch all have been replaced. Ah, well, there you go. No so, no excuses there. That must be rough. That is, that's a paid advertisement by Apple to buy the Apple Care Plus. <laughs> I think, you, you know what it is, uh, Dana? I think that you're just rough on your equipment. That's what she said. <laughs> 
So. Oh, I could go so many jokes to that one, but I'm just going to leave it alone. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> On Please stage don't. next is Nick. Okay. Nick, how have you Hello, been, sir? Uh, How's the back? Uh, uh, the back is uh, is well into the recovery phase, I would say thank you. Uh, it's no longer nearly as painful as it was. It's just uh, stiffened up remarkably and does so if I if I don't keep moving and exercising. So I'm doing that and getting some more physio. So uh, I think the doc was probably a little pessimistic, but uh, I don't think I'd have been fit to fly uh, next weekend. So I think probably overall a good decision. So that's fine. The only problem now is I've got a damn cold. So if I sneeze and don't hit the cough switch in time, my apologies. Uh, we can edit it in post. Oh, yeah, like that happens. <laughs> Somebody, who was I having that conversation with? I think it was uh, Mike. <laughs> I might as well right. go into what I've been doing since the last show. On Sunday, I, I was invited to his son, Victor Andrews, first communion, first holy communion. Um, and uh, he was saying something at the reception that he was thinking of coming up with a new drinking game for the ABG. Every time I say... I'll fix it in post. It's time to take a shot. <laughs> yeah. So that was one at least. Or no, it's two. That I just would be it a twice. hell of a drinking game. Yeah. <laughs> the entire audience would be plastered. And half the time I do actually fix it in post. We know how much hard work you've done. And actually, I've got to take my hat off to you because, of course, we've done quite a few shows in a short space of time. And I guess you've been doing nonstop editing. I have, yeah. Pretty much uh, I'm either flying trips or editing uh, shows. But... You know, it's as I mentioned many, many times, it's a labor of love. I'm not complaining. It's just uh, don't have a lot of time to do much else. But I did, as I said, got a chance to uh, uh, have some uh, good companionship and uh, uh, what um, conversation and good food and good drinking and all that kind of stuff over there at uh, uh, Mike Carroll's uh, Dispatcher Mike's house on Sunday. Yeah, I saw some of the pictures. They looked really nice. Yeah, it was a, it was a good time. Dismatch Mike, I do apologize to myself. I just didn't feel good enough, even though I had, did call in sick. I didn't feel good enough to come down on Sunday. I know what was going on. I feel terrible, but I just, uh, today is the first day I've felt good in the last several. Yeah. So well, my apologies. Hope you feel better. So um, I'm getting there. Let's see. What else? Uh, last <clears throat> show, I'm trying to think. I should have thought about this before we started recording. When did we last record? It was on. Was it on last Tuesday? End of last week? Tuesday? Tuesday, because I wasn't available. Was was it? Day I wasn't oh, available. There you go. All right. Um, oh, that's why we picked it. Yes. Yeah. That's that, exactly why. And you're <laughs> upset that I'm here today. I know. <laughs> hey, guys. Great being on the show. We'll see you next time. Well, the shot of the dark. We didn't know what your schedule was, actually. You know, after uh, the end of these shows, we kind of talk about when everybody's available on the next week. And, uh, Looked on the community calendar there to see your uh, schedule, Dana. It wasn't there, so we weren't sure when you were going to be available. So we just took a shot at this. Well, truth be told, and, and it was a week early that I was planning on using some uh, personal time, if we may say, for Nick's arrival. So I did not post my schedule. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know that, that we're still on the air, though, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Um, so I, uh, a bit more I, 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 I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not <laughs> fix some post. No. So no, I mean, really he's, unfortunately Nick's not going to be joining us. So I, uh, um, did not post that week and I should probably should just go ahead and post next week. Cause I will be working. 
God willing. Okay. And that's the only trip the entire month that I'm now going to be working. So oh, you have some vacation at the end of the month? Yeah, I get a week vacation that uh, I actually indeed, this is the vacation week. I tried to move to the July time frame, and uh, for what we all know is happening in July, uh, yeah, but I was unsuccessful. Move those move-ups do not work at all for me. Every time I've tried to move a vacation, it just, I don't know, it's like a waste of time, even with my seniority. So, and it used to when I was in that fall, it worked all the time, worked great, oh. but uh, now, no. Yeah, I guess I right. turned that off if you're a captain. <laughs> Just just get a pair of scissors, Dana, and cut one of those stripes off, mate. Uh, then you'll get all the bits you like. There you go. There you go. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's talk about meetups. Um, we still have the aviation podcasting podcast listener meetup at Duxford on the 12th of May, which is, what, six days from now. Yeah, looking forward to that. I'm hoping Pilot Pip will be able to pick me up and fly me down there. So really looking forward to joining everybody down there. Uh, fingers crossed uh, that that can be arranged because if he does, it'll be from the airfield that I did my very first solo uh, at. It'll be nice to go back there anyway because I, I, you know, it's, it was a long time ago. Uh, I'd like to see what it looks like now. Uh, and... Uh, Anyway, even if uh, if we can't manage that, uh, I'll certainly be down there either sharing a ride with uh, Adam or something. Or uh, Anyway, looking forward to it, whatever. Most excellent. We look forward to hearing. I'm sure you'll probably snag some audio while you're there. I will do my best to, sir. Okay. Um, well, speaking of that, uh, did you have a recent uh, meetup with the yeah, company audio? Yeah, I've got a few items to cover, but that okay. will be a great starter. All right. Well, shall I just hit the play button? Please do. Okay. Hi, Jeff. Captain Nick here. Uh, sitting in my local pub. And uh, I've got a fine, fine chap with me. Drove, uh, well, in fact, he drives all the way around the countryside, left, right, and center, up, down, uh, in all directions. I've heard his itinerary for the last few days and been pretty gobsmacked. Uh, you and I uh, fly a reasonable distance. This bloke probably does twice that, and that's in a van. Anyway, he's, his name's Dave. He's a uh, surveyor, a chartered surveyor. So, you know, that's pretty special. Uh, in a very unique uh, part of the industry, um, but that's not important. The important thing is he's interested in aviation and he's been listening to you since? Since the Airport Geeks uh, podcast, which was something like 65, I think, APG 65, somewhere around there. That's brilliant, Dave. Uh, anyway, um, uh, we, we're trying to keep these things not too long nowadays, uh, so just tell us a little bit about yourself, and perhaps you might have a message for the old Captain Jeff. Yeah, uh, I think Nick's just told you everything about myself. Uh, I live in Doncaster, so I'm about to move house into the approach craft of uh, Doncaster Airport, so I'm looking forward to seeing many, many big aircraft flying in, maybe. Uh Love the show. Really enjoy listening to it. Hope that the Mad Dog doesn't rattle too much and that uh, the blue sky stays up and the ground stays down. Cheers. That's excellent. Thanks very much, Dave. Pleasure to hear from you. And uh, it, Dave and I are just having a, a beer and uh, then uh, uh, I have to get back to thinking of the next plane tail. You haven't got any suggestions for a plane tail, have you, Dave? Airplane races. Airplane races. 
Yeah, okay. Well, I've, 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 a few people have suggested those, particularly the old uh, London to Australia races, those kind of things. Sound they might be fun. Yeah, I'd agree. Okay, brilliant. Well, I'll look at that. Thanks. Anyway, lovely to meet you. Thanks very much indeed. And you. Cheers. And back to you in the studio, Jeff. Well, thank you, Nick. Lovely. Thank you for all uh, the kind he, words, He was Dave. a very nice chap. Yeah, he really was. And uh, he, his fascinating job is uh, he surveys sites uh, to for his company to purchase where there are cellular masts, uh, oh. communication masts. So he's a very specialist, but um, a really good business. But he certainly gets around a lot. But anyway, I had, I had a lovely uh, meet-up with him. Um, a few days later, I was on an, another podcast, uh, not a competitor for us, really, because uh, it was Chuck Fulton's uh, podcast, uh, Soaring the Sky, so all about gliding. And uh, he obviously, uh, he, well, he, he is a listener of our show, and uh, I think we I mentioned him last show, and he was just interested uh, in my short period of gliding that I did as uh, my sort of uh, first step into uh, aviation. So we uh, chatted about that. And talking of podcasts, uh, um, every little thing, uh, I'm chatting to uh, them and answering a few aviation questions uh, on Wednesday. I don't know when that'll come out there. They're quite a, they're quite a highfalutin, uh, podcast. So, um, yeah, I, Looking forward to uh, doing that. There's a, another lady pilot on at the same time, so uh, that'll be fun. Um, the Ducks of Meetup you've mentioned. Uh, I got a uh, an unexpected gift through the post uh, a couple of days ago, and if you'll bear with me for a second, uh, it's from uh, uh, Steve. Uh, oh, it's an Irish name, so uh, Fahi. I think is the correct pronunciation, but please uh, forgive me if, uh, if I didn't get that right, Steve. Uh, if, if I might just read his letter. Sure. Um, to the right honourable uh, Nick Anderson, uh, many months ago I lived in Edinburgh and used to frequent Luca's air show uh, as uh, my all-time favourite aircraft is the Phantom F4. That makes two of us, Steve. I bought a souvenir book of the OCU, the Operational Conversion Unit that trains pilots uh, to fly the Phantom. I bought it mainly because I felt sorry for the elderly gentleman who was selling it. That's <laughs> a good enough reason. Uh, many years later, and I am listening to the APG and Omega Town podcast, and I realized that you uh, might be in the book. After a quick look, there you are on page 21, Number 14, Air Defense Long Course. Uh, so on the occasion of your retirement, I would like you to have the book as a memory of where it all started. Oh, nice. Uh, thanks, Steve. And I, it is, actually. It's a, it's a lovely book, um, suitably battered. Um, so it, it is great. And there, and there indeed, it's got all the course uh, photographs. Uh, so of all the students who went through the OCU, and Jilly and I were looking at it the other night, and we were having a good old uh, trip down memory lane, laughing uh, at all the friends we were seeing there, um, and all, some of our old bosses and all sorts of people who I recognized, uh, and my ugly mug in there as well. So thank you very much indeed, Steve. A very thoughtful present, and uh, it will be going pride of place uh, on my bookshelf shelves um also uh, a thanks to uh, steve prather he took some brilliant pictures of me departing from jfk uh at the end of last year 
Uh, and he just sent me another lovely picture, sadly not me this time, but uh, of an airplane that I have flown relatively recently, a GV Nap. Uh, and it just so happens that I have that a model of that very aircraft. There it is, GV Nap. And I was taking it as a whitetail up to Manchester to receive this rather special uh, paint job it has on it, where they have written a big Acme red thank you all down the fuselage. And it's uh, one of the special paint jobs uh, we have on our outfit. I, I flew it up there. That was the last time I flew it, I think. And uh, then they painted that on, and, and I have the model. So really, I have the beautiful picture of it, uh, um, belly side down, you sort of from underneath amongst the approach lights of Atlanta, would you believe? So he obviously gets around and photographs from all sorts of places. Wow. Uh, I'd also like to thank everybody, because there's been a fair amount of activity on social media uh, since I... Um, announced my uh, early retirement and awful lot of very kind messages so thanks to everybody indeed for that and then also special thanks to uh, eric horshman whose idea it was uh, for the subject of tonight's plain tale and just in case i uh, my cold gets the better of me and i don't get a chance to thank you later eric very kind of you thanks it was a, a great suggestion i really enjoyed doing that plain tale that's awesome and, and it's your last show on the APG too, so that's kind of melancholy. <laughs> wait a minute. No, wait. Is that right? Wait. No. Are you I'm still talking be... about me again when I wasn't here? What? <laughs> You're just referring to me when I just showed up. No, no, no. I, I, was I, re- I must have missed uh, <laughs> Steph's email. Or, oh, yeah. or is she going to find me by text? Were you not uh, part of that conversation? Oops. Uops. Uh, apparently no. no. No, of course no. not. It's just the beginning for Captain Nick. I guess I just the have to change. The end. Uh, yeah, the beginning of the end, like every day is for all of us. Yeah, true. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad you're not retiring from the APG because uh, we need you here. Oh, I love it. I wouldn't stop doing it for the world. Okay, excellent. So let me take a look here, see how Steph is doing with her journey home. And uh looks like she's going the wrong way. <laughs> ah. <laughs> she started... Way over here, and now she's up here. Apparently, the traffic on one of these uh, interstate highways is not not well. Uh, so she's going to have to take a circuitous route on her way home. So hopefully she'll make it by the end of the show. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else uh, to talk about as far as meetups or anything else? Um, oh, I'm Skyping, Dana says. Are you yeah, a little that? bit here and there. You are. Okay. How about you, it's Nick? It's not too bad. Okay. Yeah, just the occasional pause. Yeah. Okay. Well, I did um, Well, I did a test before the thing. I was getting like 60 down and 30 up. Very interesting. It's only intermittent. Don't worry. Okay. Well, and it might be one of those things where everybody now is finished with their, their um, uh, whatever conference it is that they're attending here in Philadelphia, and they are getting back to their rooms and firing up Netflix and doing uh, – you know, maybe, uh, what do they call it? FaceTime and that kind of thing. So, uh, I do want to mention, um, main man, Micah in our chat room is imploring us to, uh, mention the, uh, meetup that is going to be held at the Udvar Hazi center in, uh, at Dulles international Washington, DC on the 15th of June. And let me see if I can find the exact details here. Um, 
Got to scroll back up. Udvarhazy Center on the yeah the 15th of June with the Airplane Geeks in Chantilly, Virginia, next to IAD. And then uh, a dinner at the Red Robin that night, which I believe is a Saturday night. Uh, it usually is. We've done we've uh, attended that a couple of times, we APGers. And so I'm sure there are going to be some folks in the area that can also attend and perhaps represent the APG along with the Airplane Geeks and whatever other aviation podcast might be in present, uh, present. So there you go. Mark that on your calendars. And I'm assuming that's in the APG community calendar. If it's not, we'll make sure it gets in there. Okay. Now, with that, I think it's time for us to talk quickly about the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, uh, let's see. Since the last show, we've had some folks wanting to help us, to support us financially. And we call that the coffee fund. That's why we're singing the Java Drive right now. And since the last show, using the Coffee Fund classic method, we have Randolph Ackerman. I may have mentioned him in the last one. No, maybe not. A recurring payment from Randolph. Uh, we have uh, a payment from, uh, or a donation, contribution from Keith Waymont. He was on the, or at the Kansas City meetup that we uh, played last week. Um, Brooke Spradley, she is a, a new listener on the south side of Atlanta. Welcome, Brooke, thank you. And uh, a payment or a contribution from Martin Robinson. Thank you very much, all of you, for using the, ca- the uh, <laughs> Coffee Fund Classic Method. Also, we have Patreon, and you can become a patron of the show. And since the last episode, we have a new producer. His name, Thanos Sicilus. Sicilus. Thanos Sicilus, I think. Thank you very much for becoming a patron of the show. If you want to learn more about the Coffee Fund Cadre, the Coffee Fund uh, on the APG, that's at airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Stand by for news. First item in our news folder today, a 737 goes off the runway at NAS Jacksonville and right into the water. A Boeing 737, this is from uh, heavy.com, never heard of heavy.com slash news. A Boeing 737 carrying 140 people from Guantanamo Bay has crashed at the Naval Air Station in Jacksonville, Florida. The incident happened uh, at 9.40 p.m. on Friday when the Miami Air International plane skidded off the runway at Naval Air Station Jacksonville in Florida and into the St. John's River. Flight 
293 was carrying 133 passengers and seven crew members. The plane crashed into a relatively shallow dredge in the river, and the passenger cabin was not submerged in the water. And uh, at the point of this news, um, quote, I've been briefed that all lives have been accounted for, uh, Jacksonville Mayor Lenny Curry said. And I believe that is still the case. No injury. Well, there may have been some injuries. Uh, 22 people, I believe, were taken to uh, a hospital for various injuries. Um, The only fatalities in this accident were animals, uh, pets in the uh, being carried uh, below in the uh, cargo compartment. Um, The flight was not a commercial flight, but was a a charter flight operating for the Navy uh, from NAS, I mean, from Guantanamo Bay uh, to Jacksonville, Florida. Now, uh, a little bit more information here from the Aviation Herald, uh, the crew landed on Jacksonville NAS's runway 10 again at 942 local time and uh, they ended up overshooting the runway at the end and skidding off into the river uh, 380 meters or 1250 feet past the end of the runway partially submerged and as mentioned a very shallow part of the river so it was just sitting on the sea or not the seabed the river bed and so what was going on at the time? Well, it was stormy. Heavy thunderstorms, plus TSRA in the METAR, um, with mist and um, three statute miles visibility. And I think one of the most significant parts of this, uh, in addition to the fact that it was a, a heavy thunderstorm overhead the airport, uh, there was also a lot of wind. And the, the winds were gusting out of the west, uh, from 8 to 16, gusting to 16 knots. They landed with the wind, with that tailwind. And I believe I was reading another, an update to this uh, that said that the available runway on that runway, or yeah, the runway available on runway 10 was uh, diminished a bit by some kind of a cable or something running toward the uh, approach end of the uh, of the runway that uh, made the actual length of the runway 7,000 feet or so. Do they have a, uh, a wire across the runway? Yeah, it's probably a catch cable for practicing. Oh, yeah. It could be the uh, the cable for um, military. Yeah, military. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Just like in, uh, was it? Uh, um, yeah. Well, actually, Charleston. Savannah, Charleston, Savannah. Yeah. Um, not, uh, Fort Walton Beach. Yeah. Caitlin. Right, right. So that uh, essentially, uh, effectively made the runway shorter than the 9,000-some-odd feet published. And also, the runway is not grooved. We talked about grooved runways on the last show. Uh, Captain Jeff, the good-looking one, uh, sent us some feedback regarding that. Uh, So, you know, you don't have a lot of friction on the runway, especially when there's a lot of water on the runway. And there was something else I was reading about the fact that they had a, a kind of made a crown in the center of the runway and so to help uh, water to uh, you know shed off of the runway off the sides uh, but it wasn't as I mentioned not grooved so you you have a lot of things going against you here a big tailwind and a shortened runway and oh I should mention that the thrust reverser on the left side I believe was on MEL or MCO. So it was a deferred item. So they only had an operable, one operable thrust reverser, just to kind of throw that in, you know, gravy on top. Uh, 
Yeah, that would absolutely. Uh, now I wonder if they had actually done a, uh, a, a stopping distance check, a confirmation. What do you reckon? I don't know. What, what are you eating there, Dana? I'm sorry, I poured it out. <laughs> I just poured it out onto the paper here. I'm, I'm not showing you in the microphone. I'm, just, I'm eating a. <laughs> yeah, but I'm you still eating, heard it though. <laughs> I'm sorry. Whole pumpkin seeds, healthy. Okay, excellent. Very good. I'm sorry about that. Um, and the the other thing you mentioned the wire, uh, Jeff, but. Uh, then usually on certainly on British airfields, then their actual position is not very clearly marked. So uh, you usually know it's about a thousand or fifteen hundred feet in, but it's not nearly as clearly marked as the actual threshold. So is that the case over there? Is is it very easy to tell where the wire is? And you obviously got to land beyond it because mm -hmm. there is a big danger that if you land uh, on the wire. Uh, the nose wheel can uh, hit the wire, the wire can flex, and then it might entangle with the main gear. That's the, the biggest danger of uh, landing through the wire. Um, we, so, Go ahead. So, yeah, is, is it well marked or not? Uh, well, on the airports that we serve that have these cables, um, they give us, uh, our company gives us a special page and usually clearly you know, marks the position of these cables, you know, how far from the approach end and, you know, what kind of distance you have available between the approach end and the departure end cables and, you know, confirm whether they're up or down. And also when you're actually um, on the runway itself or near the runway, there are um, I, like signage on the on either side of the runway that indicate that that's where the cable uh, location is going to be. Yeah, I'm just wondering if in the heavy rain, uh, the visibility, how easy that is to see in comparison with the actual runway threshold and the lighting that might have been on. It's just an added factor. He might have uh, erred on the safe side and made sure he was well over that cable before he put the aircraft down and leaving himself with even less runway than he would have had otherwise. So, well, I'm, Go ahead, Dana. I was going to say, from my experience operating the airports that we have, and I was just at Eglin, uh, last week um there is no real uh good marker on the actual runway however on both sides the box that controls that is a white and red checkerboard box so uh, you know in the conditions that they were in i would imagine it was not uh very easy to see but that's how i identified it um where it was located from you know when you get closer to it you can really see the cable but you know from the thousand foot point you know coming down a thousand feet and descending or roughly you know two and a half miles away um i decided to pick up where the boxes were uh on this on both sides of the field so that helped me out eglin to get over it uh very concerning for me that you know in, in this con in these type of conditions certainly uh even though i landed on a dry runway i only had about 60 i think it's 6800 feet um on that particular runway between the because they have both cables up, so I always pull a landing report and get the uh, get the data even on a dry runway to make sure that you know I'm not overweight for that distance. Even though I know it's probably okay, um, but yeah, it's, it's especially on. What? No, that was that. Keep on going. I was going to say oh. something after you finish your sentence. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say so. Yeah, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be looking. Uh, anyways, yeah, so it, it it is an important thing to to pull up our landing data. Uh, in this case, certainly with the tailwind uh, non-groove runway, and that was the first thing. That was the first question I was going to ask: uh, Is it a groove runway? And then uh, I can see the airplane comes off to the right side of the runway, which tell me the right reverse was working, left reverse may have not been working. 
Well, I was, as we were discussing this, I pulled it up on the EFB, which is right here uh, in front of me. And uh, it's a non-groove runway, lack of porous friction overlays, rubber deposits, or runway contaminants due to weather may lead to reduced traction or, yeah, traction at this uh, airport. And then they have the arresting gear systems. By the way, uh, the ones that I'm used to seeing, Dana, aren't checker red and white checkerboard, but they're like yellow with like a black dot. That's what I, in my mind, I'm remembering what they look like on the sides of the runway, but perhaps they're different at Eglin. Um, but uh, I was looking at um, the one in Eglin, then that's the only one I can remember right now in reference is the one in Eglin. I remember it being a small checkerboard box. Okay. That was just last week. All right. Um, so I'm looking at this diagram and it shows on the approach end of runway 10, the cable system, 1190 feet, and that leaves 6,812 feet available so it's even less than seven thousand feet um so yeah that is definitely going to be a factor in this as far as uh the requirement to pull up um runway remaining um and doing that kind of calculation nick i'm not sure what the sop is for miami air international uh, dana and i know that when we have this um capability now we can look in the uh the operational data manual and do that calculation, you know, the old fashioned way if we want, but now we have the uh, capability and we have had some for some time now via ACARS, we can submit the data, the braking conditions and that kind of thing. And then uh, have it, uh, you know, calculate the uh, landing distances and that's sent to us via ACARS. So that is definitely something that we would do in this situation. Um, I'm just trying to decide to myself, and I'm sure we're going to learn more about this as time goes on, why they made that. Because initially they were setting themselves up for runway uh, 2.8, which would have been into the wind. And they decided at the last minute to instead go to runway 1.0. And then it may have something to do with uh, the uh, weather cells that were surrounding the airport. And they thought maybe they would have a better... Uh, go at a, a go around or a missed approach uh, if they came or tried to land uh, heading to the east instead of the west. I don't know. Um, not sure exactly what the radar looked like at the time. Now we do have some images here in our show notes uh, and from the, well, I'm not sure exactly where um, Liz got these, uh, these pics, but uh, these images, but uh, I'm not sure if these were the exact um, radar depictions at the moment of this accident or not so yeah not sure exactly that i'm sure that weather is definitely a factor um in determining you know the the runways uh the runway that they chose to land on so yeah it's just the way that amount of crosswind uh ungrooved uh possibly very wet and the the chance of acroplaning high uh Jeez. And actually, yeah. you know, crosswind was really almost nothing. It was just mostly a tailwind. Yeah. So. Very sad. Yeah, not good. But but I think uh, there's probably a few lessons for those of us uh, about going around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just looking at this, guys, and I see uh, 04 at 0122 Zulu, and then 040145 Zulu. So you have... At one zero one two two Zulu three five zero four knots five miles mm-hmm. heavy thunderstorm. Then about the time I, I 
maybe I missed where the that, time with the, was. Within just a couple of minutes. Uh, this oh, is the oh, 45 observation, and they said they landed at 42. So, honestly, they probably had the 0122 weather or that thereabouts. Okay, so if you look at the uh, 0105 weather and the 122, both those would be landing on one, runway 10 or with a crosswind of one zero, true, and then then with about the touchdown zone, that's probably when the, the the switch had happened, yeah, and became a tailwind, and they probably didn't even know about it, is my guess because they touched down right so close to that time. Well, the tower would have given them a tailwind, not necessarily. Really, they asked for it. They they usually do though when they give you the landing clearance. I don't know if they're required well, but to the or not. Landing clearance. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Is this yeah. the that value was taken after so there is a possibility that they were swinging yeah and when they checked on the three or four minutes it takes you know from the time you check on until the time you land depending on how close you are to the runway mm-hmm. maybe the wind shift it was was occurring and that's what i'm saying yeah it, i think you're it right. looks like if you if you read the numbers the way they're progressing it goes zero six zero at three knots at zero one three zulu at zero one five zulu it's zero eight zero three knots and at one twenty two zulu Three five zero four knots. So there's really no, is a steady progression switching around. Obviously, but it wasn't until after the accident that we had the winds out of the west. So at some point in there is where yeah. they probably got the, the switch, and it may or may not have been told to them. Yeah. I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. No, I think you're right. I think that um, the with the cell coming over the top of the airport or very close to the airport, and then sliding by, the uh, winds obviously shifted almost 180 degrees so that could account for the fact that they were uh, setting up for one zero um hmm. and who knows what the winds of off were doing either i mean yeah. they may have had more of a tailwind than they inspected or end up with more of a tailwind than they expected well we hope to learn more i'm sure the uh investigators will give us all that data to see what uh factors were involved in this the good news is nobody was killed no human anyway what about the dogs? just rufus just that's Rufus. why I said human. Two, two dogs and a cat. Yeah. Oh, well. Okay. Anything else to say about that one? Okay. Good. Um, the second item in the news folder, um, a Tunis Air A3. Well, you know, before we do that, there is some breaking news. And that involves, and right before we started uh, pushing the record button for this show, I heard a little blurb on the uh, cable news channel, and they were talking about a, a a business jet that had left Las Vegas and heading down for uh, Monterey, Mexico, and that it was missing, and they hadn't heard from it. And then apparently not too long after that, Liz sent a link from airlive.net, and it turns out that the remains of a Bombardier Challenger 600, the missing aircraft, have been found after it disappeared en route from Las Vegas to Monterey. And uh, it is uh, it has crashed, and there are no survivors. There were 14 on board. So that's just what we have right now. Not sure exactly what happened there, but uh, clearly it did not make it to its de- destination. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this crash on oh, I'm the sure next we will. Episode. Just uh, just looking at the photograph of the impact, Jeff. That was uh, not spread out. Nope. So 
that is like airplane shaped. So it was probably coming down pretty steeply, uh, flat plating in, I mm-hmm. would guess. Uh, but you're right. We'll find out more later. But uh, normally, when you get a high-speed impact, or uh, uh, when he's coming in in a nor- more normal attitude, uh, the debris is spread a long way. But this is just airplane shaped, straight uh, flat on the ground. And if it's coming yeah. in like really a, in a vertical manner, usually they're just a big crater or something. You know. Yeah. If he's nose diving in, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in this it's case, sure. as you mentioned, it's just like the pancaked. The, yeah. Just pancaked yeah. in. It sure it to me it looks like a stall. Yeah, well, who knows? We, 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 we don't know. Yeah, but it, it's clearly in the complete form of the airplane, yep. like it was just put there. Right. All right. So now we'll go to item B. Uh, Tunis Air A320 lands with vehicles on the runway, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, Jeff, you meant to get the audio from that before you actually did the recording of the show. But that was one of those things that apparently I, oh, I missed. But that's okay, because I can just push this link and start playing it. This is from VAS Aviation, VAS Aviation, Real ATC Communications, a Tunis Air, Airbus, uh, am I pronouncing that right, Tunis Air? Tunis Air? Airbus? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, uh, Tunis probably, Air, yes. From Tunisia, I guess, right? Um, A320 211 performing flight 716 from Tunis DTTA to Paris Orly LFPO had been instructed twice to go around due to vehicles carrying out an inspection on the runway. The aircraft landed instead while the vehicles were still on the runway. Uh, the tower controller reprimanded the crew and filed a safety report. And so let's uh, listen to this, shall we? Oui, encore une arrivée et après on faire l'inspection. On fait 3402, bonjour, après le départ du CRJ depuis Whisky 41. And what he's saying is France Soleil 3402, hello, behind the departure of CRJ from W41, line up on runway 24 and wait behind. Alignez-vous, piste 24, attendez derrière. Et après, right there he said, Air France 138, uniforme, piste 24, autorisé décollage, vent 160 degrés, 3 nœuds. And do some décapage. Turk 75 Alpha, contact ground, bye bye. Ground, bye bye, France 75 Alpha. Inspection unité, tu peux pénétrer et contrôler piste 0826, rappelez piste dégagée. Hopefully we'll get to the important thing where they're actually speaking English so we can understand what they're saying. But it is interesting that... Say again? That we haven't understood a word of what they said so far. So Which is kind of part of the problem with these exactly. situations where they're using different languages. And if it's not your native language or you don't know the language, you don't really have any idea what they're saying. Nope, not a thing. All right. Now, I know, I know what they're saying because I'm looking at this uh, video that uh, VAS Avi- Aviation put together, and they're putting the uh, the English in, uh, in the, the captions so I can read it. Attends, 
Alors, France 738 uniforme, contactez le départ 127 décimal 750, au revoir. 27 750, le départ 738 uniforme, au revoir. Au revoir. Goodbye. Tower, Tuner 716, full stop is runway 26. Tuner 716, bonjour. For information, runway inspection in progress, reduce minimum approach speed and report short final runway 26. Okay, so he said. Basically, continue. There's a runway inspection in progress. Okay, so minimum speed, and we call you short final runway 26. Okay, there's an understanding. Okay, minimum speed, we'll call you short final 26. Another airplane he's communicating with, giving him takeoff clearance to runway 24, which is a different runway. Le départ 127.750. Contact departure. Le départ, au revoir, sans soleil euh, 34.02. Now we're back to runway 26. Inspection unité. Inspection 1. Go ahead. Inspection unité, tu en as pour combien de temps How long will you be Merci. I don't know what he said there. Tuner 716, confirm you are at minimum approach speed. Okay, that's the Tuner flight. Confirm you're at minimum approach speed. Yes, sir. So, uh, minimum approach speed for Tuner 716. Ah, Don't know what that was. Tour, bonjour, France 45, Golf Juliette, en finale, il y a 26 avec 192. Okay, that is an airplane behind Tunis Air uh, and Air France on runway 26. Inspection unité pour info, le trafic à une minute. Okay, what did they say there? Let me read the translation. Uh, inspection 1, for information, the traffic is to land in one minute. Traffic in minute. I think that must be the inspection vehicle. Tuner 716, go around the wind 320 degrees, 2 knots. Okay, he, he issues a go around command to Tuner 716, and then he gives them the read, uh, the, the wind readout. Uh, no, that's not what he told him. He just thought he was repeating the instruction, but he said clear to land, runway 26. Negative. 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 Uh, uh, negative. Go around the runway 26, wind 320, two knots. Okay, negative. Go around runway 26, and then he gives him the, re the wind readout again. That's the inspection vehicle. And the inspection. Roger, inspection one, contact ground 121.705. Contact de le sol 121.705. I think he's kind of talking like that because he's watching out the window. This Tunis Air 716 that 
he told to go around twice is landing on runway 26. But it appears that the inspection vehicle has cleared the runway. Air 716 for Yes, good. Yes, you are cleared for uh, going around procedure and you landed instead, so please next time be more aware. I just uh, we heard uh, with the wind uh, velocity and direction, and uh, then uh, the, uh, the people, the two trucks that we saw them just uh, vacated from the runway to uh, six. Yeah, but we told you twice go around. So if we tell you go around, you just go around, even with even with the, the vehicles are just exiting the runway, sir. Next time you obey. You obey. Yes, ma'am, but he gave me the direction of the wind. I heard that he didn't understand go around. I didn't understand from him and go around. He gave me the wind. I thought he told me to, uh, me to land. For, for information, we'll make a report about this. That was really, really dangerous. Okay. Okay. So, there you go. Coming in for landing. He says, okay. Uh, slow to your minimum approach speed. There's going to be a runway inspection. And... I think he understands that and they continue and then there's some, some, uh, stuff going on on the radio in a different language. And, uh, we understand that the inspection vehicle is on there and he's telling the inspection vehicle, Hey, uh, the airplane on final is going to be landing in one minute and the inspection vehicle does clear. However, the tower controller is not sure that that's, they're going to clear in time. So he tells the, uh, Tunis Air Flight 716 to go around. And then he says, winds 320 at two knots or whatever he says. And the uh, Tunair or Tunis Air Flight kind of interprets that as a clearance to land. And so he says, cleared to land. And then the tower controller comes back, no, negative. Go around, winds 320 at two knots or whatever he says. So, Interesting discussion about about communications here, I think, or lessons to be learned from communications. What what did you think about this, Captain Nick? It's uh, always difficult when you've got mixed languages, and they're permitted to do this. It's a it's a, a country uh, um, permitted variation from the ICAO rules that English is standard. Uh, so uh, so long as you do everything in French. I think you can't do half and half. Uh, that was permitted with these various aircraft. But of course, uh, the Tunisian aircraft, he's uh, doing the ICAO thing and speaking English, so they're required to speak English to him. But of course, you lose a great deal of uh, situational awareness when you're only getting part of the picture. Uh, because as you've said many times, Jeff, uh, listening out to the radio allows you to uh, obtain a mental picture of what is going on, on the, around you. And if you can't get most of that because it's in a language you don't understand, then you're missing out on all that information. Um, the uh, other problem is the controller's accent is fairly strong. So uh, even I, who I used quite used to hearing a uh, French accent, uh, the first time I listened to this, I wasn't sure the guy had said go around. And uh, certainly, if you hear uh, someone from my country tell you to go around, he is very firm. It's an order. He doesn't make it sound like it's a piece of conversation, and he usually won't tag a wind on the end of it. That's uh, the confusing I, thing, I think. You know, why why would you tell the person what the winds are? Yeah. Um, the fact that there was another voice that came on, 
um, very soon after makes me wonder if this was someone under training and the supervisor, his uh, supervising controller came on uh, at the end. Or it might have just been the tower supervisor. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yes, you're right. Uh, and someone in the chat room was saying, well, but they didn't give any directions. Well, this, that's an American thing in Europe. If you're given a go around, you're expected to just fly the published missed approach procedure. So there's no reason to add any other instructions. You're just told go around. Uh, and uh, But the, the main problem was the guy didn't read back the go around after either of the controller's orders. And if I was the controller, uh, God forbid, uh, the first thing I would require would be a, an acknowledgement of the right. fact that I've given a go around. And if I didn't hear it immediately, I would repeat more urgently the, the instruction. Oh, excuse me. You guys carry on. Yeah, I, um, I agree. And it's not uncommon here in the U.S. If, if they want you to go around for them just to say, go around. Um, and not give you any instructions until after you've started to execute the uh, go around procedure. Um, so, you know, that, that is not uncommon here either, Nick. Um, but, uh, throwing in the wind there definitely is a factor. And then when the supervisor or the female voice comes on, I'm thinking I can understand very clearly what she's saying. And I had the same issue with you with the other controller, not, not very clear what he's saying. No. And, and, you know, being that, you know, Jeff and I primarily fly in the United States, um, we are used to having a full comprehension of the, uh, of the accents. Well, sometimes depends on if you have my accent or not, or it's a control of the accent that has my accent. Uh, so that sometimes can be a little issue, but, uh, in, in the big scheme of things, uh, you know, I enjoy flying in the States because I don't have to try to, uh, understand the, you know, bad English accent. And I think that was a huge contributing factor. I agree with both of you guys that uh, having situational awareness, you know, they did communicate to the, the vehicles on the runway. I'm sure they saw the vehicle on the runway from the, the, the flight deck. And being that said, uh, you know, there was a loss of communication because he couldn't understand where the uh, w what they were saying to the, the vehicle on the runway. So I think that's a huge contributing factor. And and I agree that, you know, if you, if you need to go around, the controller just needs to be go around, uh, you know, in, in that, that win was just confusing to me too. So, um, I would have questioned it. I didn't, I again, try to listen And you know, one thing, one of the things that we always try to do, um, is always, if we don't understand or, or if there's any question, we always query or tend to query ATC, uh, because an extra radio call doesn't cost you anything. So I, th I think there was probably some confusion there. And to be fair to the controller, the initial controller, after the Tunis Air flight, uh, after the he was told to go around and he said, Roger, cleared to land, the guy comes back and goes, Neg negative, go around, wins, so-and-so, so-and-so. Um, so right there, I mean, I guess he thought he was being pretty definitive when he read back the wrong thing. It says negative. That should have been the clue to the uh, Tunis Air flight or the Tunisian Air uh, airplane that, oh, okay, no, it's not a clearance to land. He wants us to go around. He was listening, but he wasn't getting the community. What happened was there was listening going on and, and speaking, but there's no communication. Right. Not It wasn't. You know, hearing it, but not really comprehending it. Exactly correct. But again, so, I think a major factor here, in addition to the different languages and the accent, but 
why in the world would they include? And then Nick, you're probably right. Maybe it was a student or somebody under training thinking that he has to always say the wind velocity and direction after each of these kind of calls. And uh, that just did not help with comprehension of what they really wanted them to do. No, you're right. But I, I think come the um, come the actual inquiry, because they'll obviously look into this, uh, the fact that the controller clearly said go around twice mm-hmm. uh, and the guy didn't, I think that will be the deciding factor. And even when uh, he said clear land and was, as you pointed out, negative go around, uh, the guy really is, uh, hasn't got a leg to stand on. Right. I agree. Whoa. I hear music from her studio, Lakeside Studio in South Carolina. She's a doctor, a skydiver, a marathon runner, a strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. We know her as Dr. Steph. Ooh, I think you're done talking. Sorry, it cut out there a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry. My my signal is like not great for some reason. I was going to try and time it right, and then I was like, I'm just not sure. (laughs) But hey, I made it. I'm finally here. I'm sorry. I Yay. feel a little bad because you guys basically decided on today's showtime on this day and time for hey, that's okay. working around my schedule. And then I still managed to mess it up anyway. It, you're always worth it, Steph. So <sighs> don't apologize. Yeah. No apology well, necessary. I was, it was looking, one of those days. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was looking at your uh, glimpse that you sent me yeah. and thinking, well, that's kind of a circuitous route home. Well, I took a look at it. it I go that way not infrequently because 77 South can just be a major parking lot. Mm-hmm. And I took a look at it and I have a, a point on a bridge and overpass where I can make that decision kind of last minute as to 77 or kind of go around and around the airport. And, and, for, and I looked at I-77 and it was a parking lot all the way as far as I could see. And I went, eh, nope. nope. Yeah. Nope. So I don't know if it was actually any faster in the long run, but at least I didn't have to sit in stop and go. Yeah, that always makes it better. Yeah, yeah. And it really wasn't bad. It's just, you know, a little bit bit longer. Well, we're glad you're here. So have you been listening to uh, our discussion about this? uh, I have been listening to everything. Okay. I hear Um, all. Even all the stuff that we said about you behind your back? Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. I took some notes. Yeah. I didn't. I I was (laughs) nice. We did not. She knows we... We'd never say anything bad. Or I don't know. I missed the first like few minutes of whatever. Oh, you're the first saying. few minutes. Whoo! Glad you missed that. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. You're safe. Okay. I'm, ho- I'm hoping Liz was taking notes for yeah, me. Yeah, no, she Liz. she never does. <laughs> so, um, any any comments or uh, any any input regarding this? Uh... Uh, no, yeah, I think you guys summarized everything I would have said about it. I always think it's a little um, so for me as a native English speaker um, and at least dabbling in some other languages and being familiar with other accents. Generally, I, uh, you know, I didn't have Nick's difficulty understanding the French controller, although I think his accent was quite strong. But I'm thinking if you are also not a native English speaker trying to listen to that, you are that much more at risk of not understanding what is going on or being said. Um, And I'm wondering if uh, the Tunis Air pilots, I don't think English was their first language either. So You've got two non-native English speakers trying to talk to each other with very different accents, um, giving potentially some uh, extraneous information. Although I think I agree with Nick. He was pretty pretty clear there in his go-around uh, clearance or not not giving them clearance to land. And um, 
I think uh, it was mentioned by someone else about expectation bias. You know, you're expecting to hear uh, a landing clearance and then you hear the wind information and in your mind, your mind just glosses over the fact that that was go around. It was okay, cleared to land. Because um, he says it so so confidently right after he gets the uh, go around mm-hmm. uh, command. Um, and I think that might be discussed in further detail on a future podcast by other podcasters. So confirmation bias is definitely a strong confirmation thing. bias. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Expectation bias, confirmation bias. Or exper- uh, yeah. Ex- expectation bias. The yeah. same thing, right? I guess. I, mm, yeah. Or whatever. maybe there's a, some nuance differences. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> not sure. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds no, good to me. It was, a, it was a good conversation. Good, good discussion okay. on that topic. Excellent. Um, yeah. I missed out on all the intro stuff. I did want to, you guys had a whole bunch of meetups that you talked about, and I wanted to mention I'm having a meetup in Charlotte Yay. on Wednesday, this Wednesday. Two the days from now? 8th, two days from now. Okay. And I mentioned it the last show, and I mentioned it being at 7.30 in the evening. I've changed that. I no longer have the meeting that I was supposed to attend, so we've moved it up to 5.30 Ooh, nice. local time. Uh, much better for me because I've got a lot of stuff to do this week. So if I can not be out super late, that helps me. Where's it going to be? Quite a bit. We're going to do it at the Heist Brewery, which is in Noda in Charlotte. It is on North Davidson Avenue, which is what Noda stands for. Oh. Um, I put the, I forget the address, exact address off the top of my head, but it is in the APG community calendar. It is on Slack. I posted it to the social meds. Oh, nice. So. Look at you. Um, I know. <laughs> So I thought like no I thought I thought no duh was uh is that right? No, duh. No duh. I mean No. Yeah, that's like a backronym for it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a back back what? Backronym? Where you take an Backner- acronym and then you backronym. build I've never heard um, that term. No? No. So the acronym stands for something, but then yeah. you, you change it into, turn something, it into else. something else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. Backronym. I learned so much doing this show. Don't we all? Yeah. Thanks, I was Jeff. trying to work out what a social meet is. Yes, that's it. Yeah, I, this, this week I have. I've got the headphones Good. on my ears. Uh, yeah. Last week it was a different matter. Yeah. Well, all right, you're all back all your now. tech support. Huh? I guess my, my bandwidth is really going nuts. Uh-oh. Because everything just blanked out for like 20 seconds. I'm thinking, well, I guess they're still there. We're still here. We were still talking. Yeah, good. Yeah. I'm sure I was great. There was no, there was no blank spaces in there. No word. Excellent. Okay. Well, are you uh, recording yours uh, stuff? No, but give me. Okay. Sorry. I should have been doing that while you were talking. Because. That would have been smart. That will be. uh, I am now. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. This is going to be one of those shows. I think that I'm definitely going to have to use it. Unfortunately. Okay. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to skip C, D, and E. F. And um, we're going to go right to this one, which happened, was it today or yesterday? Yesterday. Okay. Yesterday. Uh, 41 dead after a Sukhoff. Is that right? Um, Uh, Sukhoi. Sukhoi. There we go. I'm sorry. Yeah. I got to scroll this thing down. Okay. Here we go. A Sukhoi. Super 100-95 at Moscow, uh, May 5th, yeah, so yesterday, um, crashed on landing. Now, from what we know so far is there's some indication that after it took off, uh, it was struck by lightning. They were having some communication issues, uh, sporadic communication 
uh, via the radio. Uh, they did squawk emergency and brought the airplane around. Now, I'm not sure of any other issues involving the lightning strike and what capabilities of the airplane had been uh, taken away or what kind of issues they were having to deal with. Uh, and perhaps that's what uh, caused them to come in to the first approach uh, very, very fast and uh, unstabilized. And they did a go around from one of the uh, reports that I was looking at. And then they came back around for a second attempt at a landing. And the second attempt, they, they hit the runway and bounced at least once, perhaps twice. The third one or the second one, depending on how many times they bounced, uh, some of the surveillance video that we've seen shows the airplane um, apparently or, uh, yeah, out of airspeed and the nose kind of pointing down at the runway and they, they're probably looking at the nose coming down rapidly toward the runway and then pulling back to prevent the nose gear, nose section of the airplane hitting. And that just kind of swapped the hit, made the tail uh, come down very, very hard against the runway. That last touchdown um, caused the, looks like it caused the main gear to break off or maybe even the struts go through and puncture through the wing, the wings, and perhaps puncturing the fuel tanks. And you can see it kind of coming down on its wing-mounted engines as well. And then just nothing but a big fireball as it skids to a stop. And then some of the surveillance video that we see shows the front left and right doors opening up, the slides coming out, and the passengers uh, coming out uh, of the airplane via the slides. And from about the wing back to the tail, it's just completely engulfed in a very uh, horrible fire. And we're surmising that uh, the 41 people that were killed in this were back in that back part of the uh, airplane. And there was actually some video from inside the plane mm -hmm. uh, near the, the wing, mm -hmm. um, and that fire was incredibly intense almost immediately. And from what I could tell in that piece of video that you're referring to, mm -hmm. Steph, it was on the outside of the air, air, airplane. Correct. Okay. Yeah. It did appear to be on the outside, but I mean, clearly very quickly. And there have been reports that say that some of the passengers said that there was a fire inside the airplane before it landed or it was on fire before the aircraft landed. But I don't think we're getting any confirmation of that. I think that might just be speculation or, you know, mm -hmm. typical witness reports. Um, well, the video of the airplane touching down didn't look like it was on fire. It did not. You're right. No. It did not. Um, so, and I also read something that said that the flight crew, especially the flight attendant, flight attendants at the front of the airplane saved a bunch of people's lives by grabbing them by the collar and forcibly just almost fling, you know, look at that video of them coming down that slide. And I was like, wow, I'm impressed. These people are like really coming out of there rapidly. And then it made sense to read that the flight attendant or the flight crew was grabbing people by their collar and throwing them out the door of the airplane and down the slide. Uh, and not, if not for that, they said that the, the death toll could have been much higher. Uh, and the also reports, guess what? You're not going to believe it. Oh, don't tell me. Yes. Yeah. I can guess. Yeah, I've seen video. Of yeah. People with their bags. And they said that uh, that a lot of the people that probably perished 
did so because the idiots that were in the front of the airplane, in the mid part of the airplane, were opening up overhead bins to grab their luggage before they left the airplane. I would be punching those people I and hope stepping over that them. those people just Seriously. realize what they've done. Horrible. I mean, that's that's a little bit of speculation there. You that don't know. I mean, that that yeah. that fire was exceptionally intense, and who knows if True. you know everyone had done what they were supposed to do and not stopped to take baggage or get anything down from the overhead bins. If anything different might have happened, but um, certainly it doesn't help. So if that is ever you in that unfortunate situation, it's just, it's just stuff. Okay, it's yeah. Human lives are more it. important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm looking. I'm looking at this, and I don't know if anybody's taken a, a peek at the inside of this. Not the particular plane that went down, but uh, just in general, and it's all fly by wire. Yes, so it? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's it actually looks very much like an Airbus uh, Airbus cockpit, um, and it you know, has a side yoke on each side, and uh, yeah, I don't need to go any more detail, but. You know, one has you know suspect that with the lightning strike, if it didn't take out some of the systems, obviously it took out some electronics uh, with the loss of communication. So uh, I don't believe that the pilots would, you know, land the airplane that hard unless they're having problems controlling it. That that is uh, what people are surmising because obviously uh, coming in, either either they were having difficulty with a loss of airplane systems and capability. Um, you know, perhaps maybe they couldn't put the slats and the flaps out. I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe they had to come in at a very high speed or maybe just the human factor of, you know, we're in a bad situation. We need to get the airplane on the ground as quickly as we can and kind of rushing themselves. But we're not going to know, of course, until the the Russian investigators uh, start, you know, giving us some information about the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorders. No, though of interest, though it was actually Boeing that built this aircraft in conjunction with uh, Sukhoi. Uh, Boeing were a major uh, advisor on the engineering, the design, uh, providing uh, maintenance, crew training manuals, spare parts, and supply, etc. Um, rather than Airbus, so if they did build it in uh, the same model as a. An Airbus, it would have been of uh, Sukhoi's uh, design, I would guess, and nothing to actually do with Airbus. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody said it had anything to do with Airbus, did we? No, it, it, the, the, the flight deck just resembles what a, I mean, I'm not inferring it's an Airbus, I'm just saying it would resemble a, a cockpit very similar to what the Airbus product would be. All right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you look at it, it, it has, you know, it, it, it very much looks the same. It's just a different airplane. <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely a yeah, Russian-built airplane, it, and uh, yeah, it, it has had a bit of a troubled past as well, Jeff, because uh, it, it came into service uh, with quite a few airlines, and um, for example, CityJet, an Irish airline, uh, was flying them out of London City Airport, um, and uh, but they've had a lot of uh, serviceability problems, um, a lot of problems with the engines uh, not. Uh, making their way up to their expected life cycles before they required uh, corrective maintenance. Uh, And uh, some uh, airlines have sent their aircraft back uh, to them because uh, of uh, the lack of support and lack of, uh, um, you know, they've been grounded for a long time, waiting for spares, this kind of thing. So it sounds like the company has not been um, one of the best 
organized ones when it comes to this particular aircraft as well. But to be fair, it, um, I think a lot of new airplanes recently have been experiencing all kinds of issues, perhaps not quite ready for prime time um, issues. And this yeah, just happens could, to be yeah, one of good them. Good point. And it, it was a new aircraft and, you know, it was any. Doesn't mean that that's not an excuse for it, of course. Uh, they should be ready to go, you know, when they're released and certified, they should be perfect. Yeah. It was developed uh, well, in 2000, so it's been around for a little while. But, it has uh, been. It's been a hard um, sell for them as well. Had a bit of, yeah, it's had a bit of a checkered history. Yeah, and the only other crash that I, I'm aware of, and we've talked about it on this show, was the one when they were doing a demonstration flight in Indi Indonesia, and that was, of course, all pilot error. They basically flew into a mountain. Yeah, ignoring their um, uh, warning systems, yeah. their terrain warning systems. So That was in yeah, 2012. Yeah. Okay. With that, I think anything uh, else in the news? Uh, we talked about that Bombardier 600 that just crashed. We don't know anything about that. And uh, uh, we'll try to cover some of these other items in the news folder on a subsequent show. And now I think it'd be a nice thing to do to head over to your feedback. message. Excellent. Let's start off with Tom. He says, hello, I wanted to say after hearing all your responses to the American 321 veering all over the runway and taking out a sign that as, as an aspiring pilot, it's a privilege to be able to listen to and draw from your joint experiences. As you went through the specific techniques for a crosswind takeoff, I learned something that I will be able to take with me and hopefully apply in my flying career. Listening to the discussion, I came to the conclusion that perhaps you all take for granted the value of the training you've each received and the invaluable experience you've gained from it. It's something you can't measure. I think having the freedom to go out and experiment in a single pilot environment probably gives you a real appreciation of the basic application of simple aerodynamics, which ultimately translates into good airmanship. The ability to make little mistakes in an environment where it is relatively inconsequential is how we learn best as a species, and it's hard to re replicate in a simulator or even whilst under instruction. I think this is something that the new generation of pilots is missing out in on some cases, or uh, missing out on in some cases. Over here in the UK, you can get to the right seat of an airliner with little over 100 hours as pilot in command in light aircraft. This is probably because the demand for first officers is so high and the sectors that support progressive hour building don't seem to exist here as they do in the U.S. This is great news for someone like me, as it means I can start to see a return on my investment and in training relatively quickly. And frankly, it makes it an option for me at all. I also have the advantage of having a separate career, which means I can take my time. And because I'm a bit of a geek, I use that time to learn as much as I can organically by, for example, listening to the APG and benefiting from your experience. You all have more responsibility on your shoulders than you realize. Uh-oh. Um, consider, though, an 18-year-old that goes straight from school onto an airline-partnered program and may not even get a PPL under some training programs. In less than two years, they might have gone from knowing little or nothing about aviation to being one of two flight crew in the cockpit of an 80-ton jet. I'm not saying it's wrong or even unsafe, but I think for captains... 
It's important to consider that these individuals have not necessarily had the chance to hone the real basic skills that you might not even consider to be a skill, such as taking off in a crosswind. Finally, my two cents. I don't think in the airline industry you should ever be afraid to be that guy that gives advice on techniques. Everyone has their own style, and you definitely don't want to be a backseat driver, but if you can see you have some knowledge that might make your FO's technique more effective, I think you should absolutely speak up. One of the things I'm looking forward to about joining the industry is the fact that you really do learn from those that have gone before you. Of course, there's a way to go about it, but if you can't take a bit of constructive criticism, then you're perhaps in the wrong industry. As is often said on the show, a good pilot is always learning. Thanks again for the amazing show. Clear skies, Tom. Thanks very much for the kind words, Tom. And, you know, he makes a lot of good points. You're right. You know, that uh, we do, or at least I know that I do, take for granted the training that I've had and the experiences that I've had over these 37, 38 years of flying. And uh, perhaps I need to, you know, re- uh, look at my attitude when it comes to, you know, not saying things and maybe taking the opportunity to, uh, you know, make some salient points with people uh, when I'm flying that uh, might benefit them. I, I know I said that I, I normally don't do that kind of thing, but unless I'm with somebody that's relatively new to the airline or relatively new to the jet. Uh, so, and I think that, you know, that's probably something that you should expect if you're if you're new uh, with a particular airline or or a, a certain airplane. Do you uh, find so airlines are, are or at least the way airlines operate and train their pilots is fairly standardized. Do you find that there are certain people who are very set in their ways as pilots and will do the same thing the same way over and over and over again? Um, whether it's maybe the best uh, way to approach a particular scenario or not. No, for my as long as it's reasonable and safe? Not not from my point of view. Uh, I'm not seeing By the time people, because you know, I'm not a line check airman, I'm not mm-hmm. a, a simulator instructor, perhaps they would maybe see that more than somebody like me being a line pilot. I don't know. What would you think, uh, Captain Dana? <clears throat> I don't know. I... I think, do you, have you flown with somebody that is sitting there? I mean, I think that I've, I've flown with captains in the past, uh, you know, in the early days back in, you know, when I got started 30 years ago with the airlines, uh, there were definitely some captains that were set in their ways and they basically briefed that, you know, well, I, I, you know, kind of pretty much go by most of the standard operating procedures, but this is where I, I, yeah, I differ and do this and this, and this is why. And, you know, it always put me in a weird position like, uh, okay. <laughs> Well, this is going to be fun. I guess I was getting at more if there is a reasonable choice A and a reasonable choice B, do you fly with people who will always opt for A hmm. versus people who always opt for B, you know, just because that's how they feel most comfortable doing things or hmm. I think is more correct. More well, more you, correct way to do things. you know, my, my experience is, is um, num- number one, you, you, you just have the general types that are going to want to do it their way and, and, those guys tend to be the people you don't want to fly with. Um, the guys that pretty much follow at least some company standard procedures, um, they they generally, you know, it, I'm, and I'm one of them. I try to, at least now as a captain, I lead that way uh, because I find it it's easier not to try to think about how the company wants to do it versus how I'm going to do it. 
um, when I go into the simulator. So it just it's it's more standard. So uh, you know, as, as far as uh, learning um, and, and and being a single pilot, I see you know talking a little about being single pilot. You know, there's a it's a completely different mentality when you're out there um, being a single pilot, and that is that you have a little more freedom to do it as you wish to do it, as long as you're not violating any rules and the regulations and, and not, you know, violating the manufacturer specs on the airplane. So um, it, it, it is a little bit of a different flying experience uh, for me. If I'm flying a light airplane, I mean, I still try to find and fly by my you know prescribed ways, you know, following checklist and, and doing things the way that I was trained and taught to do it in the general aviation world. Uh, you know, military world might be a little different. I'm not sure, but, uh, uh, you know, basic flying skills are, are basic flying skills, uh, just a matter of how you apply them. But I think maybe uh, Steph's saying, so you notice something and you're thinking, I'm going to give this person who may not have that much experience in this airplane uh, here. You know, I see what you're doing here, but you might want to consider doing it this way. Um, you know, uh, item or way number or letter B. Yeah, I was just wondering maybe A. they've forgotten about it or they yeah. decided they like it in favor of another technique. Um well, and if, that, if those conversations ever come up, you know, in, in my briefing and, you know, to answer that specific, in a very specific way in my briefing, I, I pretty much say, listen, fly the airplane the way you want to fly as long as you fly in company, you know, within company standards. And I'm not going to sit there and tell you how to fly the airplane. If you if you'd Fair like enough. me to help you and and you want, you know, you want to learn some techniques, I'm certainly willing to help you out. But I'm not, that, that's one of the things I, I'm very specific about because I don't want them to feel like I'm watching over their shoulder and watching everything they're going to do. The only time I will say something really is, is a captain now is I will say something if they're going to violate a rule or, or uh, you know, not fly it properly. And, and, and those are the, you know, and when I say not fly properly, you take off landing, not, you know, following standing procedures and possibly putting the aircraft in danger. So, you know, those, those are the things that I look for. And I try not to, I try not to be that guy that is telling sitting there because I've had plenty of guys reach up and, and, and want to fly the airplane for me. And uh, I, that was my, my number one thing that I hated. You know, mm -hmm. if you want to fly the airplane, you're like, so gotcha. one of the problems, Steph, um, mm -hmm. with our airline um, is that, and not a problem with the airline, but one of the things that I come up against is that uh, they try to streamline certain ways to do things, certain, like, for instance, uh, VNAV descents and using VNAV in the, in the approach environment and terminal area. And there are other ways to other modes that you can use in the autoflight system, vertical speed, indicated airspeed modes, but they don't really even... Hard, they hardly mention those, and it's like they kind of drill into the people going through training that this is the way you do it. Use VNAV, use VNAV, use VNAV. So they are not used to seeing it or even, com you know, they're not comfortable at all with doing it. And then when I'm flying the airplane, I mentioned that I know this is not exactly the way that they're teaching us now. I mean, they used to, um, <laughs> but uh, this is the way I'm going to fly the airplane. And I'm not going to, I say, as Dana does, I, you know, I don't care how you fly the airplane as long as it's smooth, safe, comfortable, you know, and, and don't, you know, do anything against the, the standard operating procedures. Otherwise, you know, have at it. And I completely understand when they're doing it the way that they were trained to do in the simulator. But I'm hoping mm -hmm. that that by watching when I'm flying the airplane the way that I'm doing it, that they might pick up something that they think, hmm, yeah, actually that's right. smoother to do it that way. Than, but I never say, 
You should try doing it this way. You know, I, I, I guess that's that really is kind of where I was going with okay. it because that happens in my job too, where there's um, techniques and kind of as long as you accomplish the goal of doing it correctly without causing harm or injury, right. it's fine. Um, there are ways I think are better to do things, and I've seen people do things a lot of different ways. Um, mm -hmm. A lot, some of them I agree with, some of them I don't, some of them I learn from, some of them I'm like, wow, that will be something I never do. Um, but if you have someone observing you, you're almost hoping like, hey, pick up on the stuff that I think I'm doing well here. And then and they, go, they just hmm, never seem to. Maybe I no, should. they never do. Oh. <laughs> That's why <laughs> you're <my> asking. <laughs> I was just curious if it, if it worked kind of the same way. It blew you off. Yeah, field. that's fine. Yeah, I see what you're doing and it's much better than the way I'm doing it, but I'm not yeah. going to change. I'm not going to change. <laughs> you know, in, 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 in all honesty, I mean, you're, you're hitting it right on the head, Steph. It's, it's, it's really, and, and Jeff, you, you, you know, you, if, if you're as an individual want to become a better a pilot, learn, you watch the people that are, I've been doing it for a longer time. I mean, I've, I learned stuff from Jeff. I mean, and I'm hoping that my FOs learn something from me and, and that's how we pass down the knowledge. So, you know, I do it just, I actually fly very similar to the way Jeff does. I've always liked, you know, vertical speed and IS in a lot of situations. It's a lot smoother. It, it makes it more comfortable for the passengers. And one of the first things, and Tom, you know, take this, take this to heart. One of the first things, and anybody else listening out there, uh, the one of the first things my flight instructor ever taught me uh, way back when, when I was learning to fly, and I still remember this day, and I think I've mentioned it before on the show, is that the most important thing is smoothness in the airline world counts. So everything you got to do, you got to think about how smooth you're going to be. And the last thing I want to say is just, you know, to the, to the AB type of conversation here, um, I also like to talk to my first officers and figure out what their experience level is. Because if they're new, just out of training and, and are still trying to figure things out, my, my radar is going to be a lot more aggressive in, 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 in inter interjecting and helping this person out and, uh, you know, helping them in any way that I can and showing them some things. So, uh, but if I have a senior FO like I had uh, two trips ago, that's, you know, has more time on the airplane than I do, uh, you know, I'm certainly not going to say anything unless it has to be said in mm -hmm. that regard. I've spent quite a few years as a, an instructor and a check pilot in my previous career. When I came to the airlines, and because our particular outfit has pretty experienced pilots, I, um, the great vast majority of the time, I have absolutely no need to say anything. Uh, and it's quite obvious to me that when people get to a certain stage in their flying career, they start to feel they've got a pretty good handle on things and they're much more likely to resent uninvited comment on their flying techniques. So uh, I, with you, uh, Jeff, I tended, oh, I ha have tended not to comment unless people invite it. Uh, some first officers are very keen to learn and uh, they specifically ask for any debrief points. Uh, others, uh, you know, it's just a job well done. And even if there are things that I wouldn't have done that way, so long as it's safe, uh, then I usually let it go. Good point. And, and I've, recently I've had, and I think usually from people that are not really brand new on the airplane, but are still kind of learning the idiosyncrasies of the mad dog and they might come in and and land, you know, a little bit more firmly or whatever. Something didn't go 
the way they were they had hoped and and then they start saying well i think i did this and then it's almost like inviting me to make a comment about it and uh and and i'm very very uh ready to give them my impression of what i think had happened during that Uh, but it's only after they have kind of opened that door um unless it's something really really bad and severe and like you're really pounded on and you and you see that over and over again then you might say "Uh, here let's talk about this but that very rarely happens the other thing is that i very rarely fly with the same guy um more than once or twice Uh, i only watch him do one handling sector and i then may not see him again for a year or two oh good point so i there's no way i'm going to see any recurrent uh, problems that individuals yeah a little bit different than the environment that dana and i are working in where we see somebody for maybe six to eight or more um, segments on a trip yeah if i saw the same guy six sectors do make the same uh, kind of no i call it a mistake but the same handling idiosyncrasy that was far from perfect then i might be more encouraged to uh, you know say something and and i think uh, you you and i jeff work in a as you mentioned a, a completely different environment than nick mm-hmm. uh, you know you've got one takeoff one landing per per uh, per um rotation i don't know what they call that over there trip, what do you, what do you, uh, trip so, and pairing or whatever it is and we're you know we're, we're multiple and become far more proficient uh, a lot quicker, you know, you get, you know, one or two year FO over in, you know, flying one, one leg a month, maybe, um, or two legs a month, maybe, uh, you know, that the proficiency is not quite there. And actually a lot of experienced FOs that go over to that type of flying lose, you know, quite a bit of proficiency, proficiency. So, uh, I, th- I think, uh, you know, <clears throat> we have, we have the ability to learn a lot quicker on our airplane than, uh, let's say an international pilot would. Yeah. become more comfortable a more, lot quicker. more opportunity because we're doing it yeah. over and over and over again in a short span of time i flew 37 legs in 12 days it gives you i don't think nick flew 37 legs probably in the past two years i don't know is it a contest no it is it isn't but there's just <laughs> yes it gives, everything's it gives, a contest yes it, 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 there's stuff mrs competitive gives, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not competitive at all. Oh, oh yeah, right. That's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's joke. Good. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's the case at all. No, I'm not being competitive. I'm just using that as, as, as just a comparison. Right. So 37 bad landings. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, touche. Uh, where is it? There it is. Yeah. Um. Nick, how you how you feeling? Feeling okay? I uh, yeah. You want to you want me to do the uh, plain tale so you can? Oh, that'd uh, be nice. We have a chat about it, and then I'll I'll probably drift off. Excellent. All right. So now it's time for the best part of the show, which of course everybody knows: the old pilot's plain tales. The old pilot's plain tales. The court of public opinion. It was Napoleon Bonaparte who said, Four hostile newspapers are more to be feared than a thousand bayonets. A theme repeated by Oscar Wilde who wrote, In the old days men had the rack, now they have the press. This is a story of caution. Not to help you avoid a flying mishap or disaster, 
but perhaps how to be careful with the fame you may achieve afterwards. It was the 1950s, and America had been through a world war and was now firmly stuck in a cold war. McCarthyism had been rife, and hundreds of Americans had been accused of being communists or at least sympathetic with their aims. Suspicions and accusations could wreck someone's career, indeed their entire life. First Lieutenant Dave Steves was a United States Air Force jet fighter pilot. He had achieved his childhood dream, and he was now an instructor pilot on the Air Force's new T-33A Shooting Star jet trainer. It was the 9th of May, 1957, when Lieutenant Steves opened up the throttle of the Allison turbojet and sent his aircraft accelerating down the runway at Oakland's Municipal Airport near San Francisco and then up into the high overcast over Fresno, Bakersfield, Riverside and Blythe en route to Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix. A little after 11 in the morning, he made a call to Fresno Radio, reporting his position as overhead the city at 33,500 feet. On his left, below the clouds, lay the Sierra Nevada mountains, amongst which was Mount Whitney, which reached nearly 14,500 feet. He had been this way many times and had seen the rock and ice of the majestic Sierras, beautiful and awe-inspiring, but equally worrying to a pilot of early single-engine jets. Only a few months before, a fellow pilot, Glenn Sutton, had disappeared amongst the Sierras and neither he nor his jet had ever been found. A few minutes south of Fresno, Steves heard a boom from behind him before he was knocked violently unconscious. He came around to the smell of smoke. The aircraft was throwing him against his straps and the stick was unresponsive. Still dazed and unsure of what was going on, he had to react quickly. He reached for the canopy jettison lever and the protective perspex was blown clear of the cockpit. Moving his feet up into the stirrups of the ejector seat, he locked his straps and then reached for the pair of yellow arming handles fitted to the front of the seat. He raised them. Inside the right one was the firing lever, and squeezing it, he fired the explosive cartridge that punched him out of the aircraft. Once free of the seat, he could reach his parachute D-ring, and with a violent jolt, his chute popped open. Glancing up, he could see that there were some long rips in the origin white fabric, but he didn't have long to fall before the rugged, snow-cloud mountains came rushing up at him. Bracing, he hit hard on a bare patch of rock sticking out from a peak before spinning off and falling against the side of the mountain. Moments later, he stopped falling as his chute caught up in the rocks and ice above him. He was alive. Dave gingerly undid his harness and carefully untangled himself from the parachute straps. Leaning back against the steep slope, he looked down and realised he was on the edge of a snow-filled basin, 
but some ways below he could see a sort of cove with some rocks and a couple of withered trees. He carefully clambered up to release his parachute, which he bundled up and threw down the slope, and then he started to climb down. He had to face the slope, digging hand and footholds and pausing often to warm his icy fingers. He wasn't dressed for this kind of an environment with a summer lightweight flying suit, a thin jacket and soft kid leather flying gloves that were soon worn through. It took him several hours to join his parachute, which had bounced and rolled some way away, but eventually... He got a chance to rest, and the adrenaline that had kept him going drained out of his system. From where he lay, he still had a ways to go to get to the floor of the basin, and feeling cold and stiff, he rose to continue his climb down, but sharp pains from both ankles shot through his legs and he fell hard. For the first time in his ordeal, he began to fear that he might die in this cold and desolate place. The clouds had lowered, and he realised that no search aircraft would stand a chance of finding him. He was in a real survival situation, and he would need to summon up all his courage and skill if he wanted to live. He unbundled his parachute and made a rough sledge out of the seat cushion, gingerly sliding down until he eventually reached flatter ground. Once there, he crawled on his hands and right leg, dragging his more painful left leg behind him until he eventually managed to reach the cove that he had seen earlier. Kneeling with his hands, he dug a shallow pit under a fallen log and he lined it with his parachute. As the sun started to fall, the temperature dropped dramatically, and he knew he needed a fire to stay alive. He used his knife to hack some of the rotted wood into small chunks, and then with a little paper he managed to light a small fire in a nearby stump. As he laid back into his parachute with his feet towards the little smouldering fire, he contemplated his situation. After abandoning his aircraft, David didn't have much on him. His maps and many other things, like his military survival kit, had been lost during the violence of the ejection. He still had his Allen and Hopkins revolver, plus some extra bullets, his nail clippers, a few books of matches and some paper, but not much else, except his little radiation detector monitor in case of nuclear attack. David shivered his way through three freezing nights, and when the weak sunlight came through the overcast again, he knew that he had to move or he would die there in the snow, high amongst the mountains. Shaking the snow that had fallen during the night from off his parachute, he realised that his ankles were feeling a little better, so he began to move. Limping, sometimes crawling through the snow and rocks, he picked his way along a series of tiny ponds that showed him a way to lower ground. The movement warmed him, and he began to feel a bit better, particularly when the snow numbed his ankles. As the sun fell, he had left the basin and was heading down. The next few days were a nightmare. 
hungry, and only eating snow, he stumbled onwards through the short days and then holed up to endure the long, cold nights. His strength was failing, but he knew to stop meant death. Occasionally he found enough wood to make a real fire, but for most of the time he awoke soaked and freezing cold. He was now following a river, and in a swampy grove where he saw some grouse tantalisingly close, he got his first break since the ejection. Beside the river he saw a sign which read, Simpson Meadow, ten miles. With renewed energy he pressed on, but then lost the trail in huge snowdrifts. Counting back, he realised, was it even possible, that he had been without food for fourteen days. A few hours later, he blundered into a deserted campsite. He could see a storage cache, out of reach high up in the trees, but he found a garbage pit, which he plundered. One of the cleaner tins had the remnants of some sticky syrup, which he greedily licked clean. Pressing on with heavy legs, he stopped to rest at noon, sitting down on a log and resting his bearded chin in his hands. Peering ahead through a break in the trees, he saw salvation, a log cabin. Breathless from exertion, within a few minutes he reached the door. It was locked and no one came to his calls, and it took him hours, but eventually he managed to find a branch strong enough to breach the sturdy door. Inside, it was little more than a shed, but it was packed high with tools and equipment that the forest rangers had stored there, and on the wall, an inventory of the contents. Searching down the list, his eyes fell on the word foodstuffs. After a frenzied search, he found a couple of boxes which, for a starving man, were a treasure trove of beans, cornstarch, condiments, dehydrated soup, hash and rice. David Steve had found Simpson Meadow Ranger Station, but his troubles were far from over. However, with the equipment and protection he found there, at least he wasn't going to die freezing up amongst the mountains. Freeing his feet from his boots for the first time in two weeks, he screamed in agony as they swelled up before his eyes. For two days he lay delirious in a fever, waking only long enough to eat the hash and make some soup while it snowed outside. When he was able to think clearly again, he assessed his situation. He found some maps and worked out that he was deep in the Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. There was nothing resembling a town or even dwellings marked. Indeed, he was only 35 miles from Mount Whitney, the highest point in the United States. Two trails led out, and after regaining some strength and carrying some of the more useful equipment he found, he set off down the Tehipite Valley. David's journey was far from over and would contain yet more drama. Facing sheer cliffs hundreds of feet high, he needed to cross a strong river to continue. Swept from his feet in the icy cold water, he plunged down a waterfall and was lucky to escape with his life. 
The crossing proved pointless, as he was trapped by a dead end, and the weather began to turn. He tried to climb the rocks in front of him, but had to admit it was impossible, and he began the long trudge back to the ranger station. A month had now passed, and back in the hut he had to regain his strength. He fished and set up a crude trap for deer using his revolver. He had some success and tried to feed himself back to strength from the deer meat, but he knew he had to make another attempt at escape. Now out of bullets for his gun, in absolute desperation, he lit a forest fire. He knew this was a terrible thing to do, but surely someone would see the smoke and come to investigate. His blaze leapt from tree to tree, and for five days and nights it burned. An aircraft flew over, and he desperately signalled with a mirror, but to no avail. The days passed, and he knew he had to try to walk out again. Turning the other way, he had to climb a 10,000-foot ridge, but the weather was warming up and the snow starting to melt. He was shocked at how thin his arms and legs looked, but he pressed on, up and up over the high ground, drinking from streams and fighting the mosquitoes. He was sitting on a rock when he heard the voice, a woman's voice. She said, Hello there. He must have looked a sight. Filthy, ragged, scrawny, with matted hair, a straggly beard, and having lost forty-five pounds of weight. He tried to explain, but was finding it hard to talk. The woman rode up along with other riders, and David knew he was saved. It took many days to get him out of the mountains and back to civilization, all the while excitedly trying to explain what had happened to him and how he had survived. Once the world found out that a heroic Air Force fighter pilot had survived ejecting from a crippled jet fighter and then survived 54 days in the wilderness walking out of appallingly hostile snow-covered terrain, it was a feeding frenzy. David was brought back to his family, who had been informed by the Air Force that he was missing, presumed dead. With his handsome, rugged good looks returning, and with his stunning wife on his arm, their fairy tale story was featured in all the major newspapers, and New York publishers were bidding for rights to publish. He attended many press conferences, and then, in a shiny new uniform, was flown to Los Angeles to appear on television. A few days later, he was flown back to New York for more interviews, television shows, and meetings with publishers. It was a whirlwind of activity that culminated with an offer from the Post editor, Clay Blair, for $10,000 for his story. However, when the story had been told over and over and spread far and wide... I wonder if the Post began to regret their offer as they saw the return on their investment diminishing day by day. David was taken back into the mountains and asked to recreate his journey, but it wasn't easy. With the snow gone and summer growth everywhere, the terrain looked very different, 
and he had difficulty retracing his steps. In addition, despite an extensive search, no trace of the crashed T-33 was found. Also, it appeared that David Steve's backstory wasn't that of the perfect Air Force jet pilot. He'd been unfaithful to his pretty wife before the crash, and their marriage had been on the rocks, with Rita seeking a divorce. His flying career hadn't been going well either. He had a reputation as an officer lacking respect for authority, and during instructor's school, he had only passed with a minimum satisfactory grading in his ground check. Abruptly, the post withdrew its offer, and then began to run stories questioning the authenticity of David Steve's story. They found witnesses willing to question his account. Many lacked any credibility, like that of a pack driver who found some of David's belongings, and the park chief who claimed that his escape would have been extremely difficult. The Post also suggested that his boots weren't worn enough to corroborate his story, but it was mainly the lack of a crash site that brought David's story into question. The rumours grew, with some even claiming that David had flown his aircraft into Mexico so it could be handed over to the Soviets and the whole survival story was an elaborate ruse. The Air Force stayed silent and though no formal charges were brought, Lieutenant Steele requested a discharge which was immediately granted. His career was ruined and he had been branded a liar. David moved to Fresno and started an aviation firm that flew skydivers and modified aircraft. In his spare time, he would fly over the Sierras, trying to find his crash site and clear his name. A few years later, he was killed at the Boise, Idaho airport when he crashed a modified Stinson aircraft that he had been working on. It was after his death that some boy scouts from Los Angeles were on a hiking trip in Dusty Basin in Kings Canyon National Park. They came across the remains of an aircraft canopy. The perspex crazed and broken, but the frame was intact. The following year, it was announced that the serial number matched that of the missing T-33 shooting star that David Steves had been flying the day of his crash. Lieutenant David Steve had at last been vindicated and his amazing story had been proven true. Twelve years too late. Timing is everything. Absolutely. How sad, though. It is sad. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's believed. Nobody believes no, no one believes him. But then, oh, 12 years later, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. We yeah, wrong. despite all the uh, all the facts that were really on his side uh, and the fact that it was the most remarkable survival story, um, you know, 54 days, that's pretty impressive. Um, you know, just because they couldn't find an airplane, well, there were plenty of airplanes that had gone missing at that, you know, in, the, in you know that time of where the reliability of aircraft being what it was. Many aircraft went missing, were never found. Uh, but uh, the Post editor uh, really had it in for him, and uh, you know, he was turned from hero to mm. villain 
almost overnight. Very sad. Didn't you say at the at the beginning that the uh, that his both of his feet were badly injured and he couldn't even walk on his feet? He uh, they weren't broken; they were just badly strained. And in, uh-huh. in, the, in the fifty-four days, I guess they they, they got recovered. Better. Yeah, okay. they, they weren't sufficiently uh, injured for him to be. Uh, had permanent injury, uh, but uh, that was his guess anyway, that they were just badly strained. Did they ever but, uh, uh, find out what that explosion was and why the... No. Nope. Mm. Wow. No, because cause there was no... They were, they'd never found, they've never found the rest of the aircraft. Oh. They've only ever found the canopy. Just the canopy. So, yeah, so they weren't able to uh, okay. look at the wreckage and try and work it out. But, wow. uh, Interesting. Oh, I think it, the Russians in Mexico took that canopy and made it look like it was. Yeah, could have well. (laughs) And planted it there. uh, The fact that uh, America sold uh, T-33s to the Mexican Air Force, of course, had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Moving on, moving on. Why would they want it anyway, the T-33? I mean, you know, I I guess it was a good airplane. (laughs) I mean, it was, probably, it probably was. was. Yeah. yeah, but uh, it was a pretty early version, and that uh, yeah. was an argument. Lots of people said, "Well, why on earth would the Russians want this a basic trainer?" Yeah, uh, it doesn't make sense, and and lo and behold, it didn't make sense. But mm. people well, weren't that interested in it. They just—it's like a lot of people where they they love building up a hero, but when he is a hero, they start to look at him and think. He's not a hero, really. Let's pull him back down again. Wow. I don't know what it is. It's strange, isn't it? But Human you see nature. it happen. Yeah. Yep, I know. It's very you know why I think they couldn't find the uh, the rest of the plane? Well, you know what I think it was? Aliens. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was probably quite close to Roswell. I don't know, was it? <laughs> uh, well, it's, it, it's not that far from Roswell, New Mexico. Yeah. No. Oh, there you go, you see. See? see? Got to be the aliens. Yeah. Could have been the aliens. Yeah, there was suggestion it was a uh, depressurization or an you know, engine failure or something, but uh, no one really knows. Wow. Wow, that was a very interesting story. Oh, I love the story. Uh, Eric, thank you very much, Steve, for that suggestion. A little and, bit uh, of um, mystery and conspiracy and intrigue and that kind of stuff. And I always like a good survival skill story Mm -hmm. because he he did a good job. Mm -hmm. Take note, Bear Grylls. There you go. But I don't think Bear Grylls had a revolver with him. Oh, probably not. Maybe. Probably not. (laughs) All right. Right, guys, I'm going to take my cold to bed, if that's right. I'm feeling pretty ropey over here. Yeah, it's getting late for you. Get some rest. That's always a... Feel better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Much better. Yeah, but I just thought you know, I'd like to point out that I uh, am supporting I noticed. the other outfit for the second half of the show. Just yeah, the uh, two minutes that. before you left. Yeah, we noticed yeah. We noticed how you divided that time. Excellent. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I'll do my best. We All do right, appreciate everyone. it. Uh, yeah, thanks, everybody, and uh, Cheers, I look Nick. forward to chatting Cheers, again next week. week. Feel better. Okay. Yeah, feel better. Good night. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. All right, let's move on with the second item in the news. No, not Oh, we've made it to number two? Yeah, Good. we're already on number two. <laughs> we're way past our expectations here. Yeah. Uh, Dixon, we, we had talked about ramp stuff, ramp rats and, and that sort of thing. He says, hey, guys, my name's Dixon. I'm a new listener to ABG. It's the perfect supplement for when I'm just chilling out at home or doing some studying. 
Piloting is something I've always had a passion for, but alas, I'm a college sophomore on the good old Raymond noodle, ramen noodle diet, so training is something that's got to wait. But I figured in the meantime, I might as well do the next closest thing. I've recently been hired by a fairly large ground services contractor, and I'm beyond pumped. My mom has always talked about when I was younger, I would jabber endlessly about how I was going to drive the tug, and lo and behold, it's becoming a reality. I do have some questions. Number one, this is going to be my first foray into the world of manual labor. Up to this point, it's just been restaurant jobs and a little gig at a local airfield. That's Delta 5-2, Geneseo, New York. That's uh, south of uh, Syracuse, I believe, in the Finger Lakes. Finger Lakes, yeah. Yeah. Finger Lakes. I know you guys are primarily pilots and not rampers, but do you folks have any recommendations of what to not do so I don't become, quote, that guy? Well, you know, you're in luck, Dixon, because I worked the ramp at uh, Fixed Base Operations, FBOs, uh, for uh, a few years of my life. And Dana, also, you were a ramper too, weren't you, for a time? I show sure, I was actually a ramper and ramp instructor and a ramp supervisor. Well, I think you're just the person to, <laughs> to, to, to you know, Dixon. inform Dixon. Start taking notes. Yeah. Start taking notes. What not to do, Dixon? What not to do, Dana? What not to do? Don't yeah. be that guy. No, I'm really only <laughs> kidding. Easy. Helpful. Very helpful. <laughs> you know, it, Dixon, I'm going to be quite honest. With you. you are looking at a, a very physical job. Um, not so much in the GA world. Um, but, uh, as a, as, as a, um, what was what you did, Jeff, that's why I was right. uh, right. We did actually, occasionally I have to uh, defend myself. Uh, we would also, um, be hired to do some of the charter stuff. Like, uh, we, I remember a DC eight coming in from Hawaii and, you know, offloading the bags and doing the typical ramp stuff that a, an airline ramper would do. But not all the time. You're right. Yeah, not not all. So anyways, uh, in in all honesty, Dixon, it's all about your attitude. And you've got to understand that if you have a good attitude and get out there and have a good work ethic, um, that you will do fine. It's going to be days that you get out there and it's going to be raining and cold and snowing. And, you know, even though you have your rain gear on, it's still going to be very trying. And you got to understand the dynamics on the ramp. It's just like any place else. You get your your strong people, your weak people. uh, your your people that are trying to dominate everything, and then then uh, you know you have to play the political game even on the ramp sometimes. I just know that you know there are going to be times, especially as a new newbie, you're going to be put up in that bin, and you're going to have to stack those bags, and it's a lot of work, hard work, and uh, just know that you're going to go home sore. I'll probably lose a few pounds, and uh, um, as long as you show up to work on time, do your job. Um, it's, it's not, it, this, the job itself is not rocket science, just to show willingness to learn, um, and, to be there and be reliable. Those are the big things that they look for because, uh, you know, as a ramp person, which, you know, listen, I used to work to ramp and look where I'm, where I am now, Dixon. So, you know, it, it can happen. It, and a lot of people that are motivated, uh, do go forward in this business, uh, and, uh, just, uh, continue keep you, your nose up and, and, and be proud and, and work hard. So hard work. Um, he, that was his first question. <laughs> yeah. Second says, question. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Do you want to, I was going to, I was going to ask a question and let you answer it. Okay. Uh, this is not a primary concern of mine, but is ramping in general, a decent way to get the foot in the door as far as becoming an airline pilot goes? 
Well, you know, honestly, I, I already kind of answered that, but what it does is it gives you a good uh, ground up feeling in, 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 in knowledge of what it's like to work your all, your way all the way up. So I think it, it's not the best route to, 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 to the cockpit because, well, quite frankly, the best route to the cockpit is flying. Uh, you get to build your experience in, in, in flying and, and, and make that investment. But if you need to work, it's a great place uh, for you to build your experience, understand what the operation's like, how things uh, actually um, uh, move in the business. And uh, you do get some great experience. So I would agree that it's not a bad way to go, especially if you need to work for a while. And it's a huge benefit to if you do finally make it into the pilot ranks, you'll have a really good perspective of what's happening down there on the ramp. Correct. Which is definitely a good thing. His last question, are there any unofficial or secret life hacks to make ramp life a little easier? Yeah, you go to that website, ramprattlifehack.com. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I don't think that exists. Dana, you need, you need to, to set up that site. Yeah. That, that... yeah, I'm going to set that up. Thank you for that, that idea, Jeff. I'm going to start charging $10 a month for, there for, you go. Uh, for ramp, a membership to it. Yeah. Secret life hacks for ramp rats. <laughs> Are, do you know any special uh, secret life hacks? Uh, probably not any. Not really, other than you know, make sure you have uh, – a uh, good pair of knee pads. Yeah. Because believe it or not, those bins are not nearly as tall as you think they'd be. You spend a lot of time on your knees. And uh, um, one of the things that happens when you're on your knees in those bins is this sharp metal. You know, that can be sharp metal. So uh, be very careful when you get up there. I, I tend to use uh, those work gloves from Home Depot um, to, to help protect my hands a little bit when I was up there. But you know, it's just it's it's something you're going. To, oh, and a very good, a uh, uh, very good set of uh, uh, rain gear. Um, you're going to need that, yeah, because it will definitely be out there. Um, when you said the knee pads, I thought you're. I thought well, we're not going to talk about uh, corporate politics here. No, we're not, and <laughs> I, <laughs> and there's really a good use for them. Yeah. So uh, you know, it, that's you know, I I have scars on my knees from being on the knee on the knees and the, the bellies of the eighty eight strong bags, and mm. I've been there, I've done it. Um, One of the nice things I think about, um, sorry to interrupt you there, Dana, uh, about the um, life of a ramper is the fact that you get to spend what ninety percent of the time outside. But that's also yep. one of the downsides. <laughs> the weather's you don't get a choice good. of when you can be outside. It's yeah. just all the time. Right. Not just on the nice days, you know, when it was like today here, mid 70s, low humidity, yeah, it was a perfect sunny. Day. Yeah. It was great. I would have loved to have been outside all day today. Mm -hmm. well, and, 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 that's, and that's exactly correct, Dixon. If you kind of read between my lines, I was encouraging you to get some good rain gear yeah. because you will need. Sorry. That's right. That's so, good. Part of the ambiance. Yeah, the ambiance of my wife just showing up to pull dinner out of <laughs> we the We always oven. know when Julie's home. <laughs> well, it's time for me to jump out the window now. Uh-oh. But no. <laughs> uh -oh. I'm not. Wait a minute. You're not supposed to leave, oh. Dana. Yeah, not you. <laughs> He's gotten this all wrong. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> we'll fill you in on how this works later. <laughs> Please do. I, I you throw the computer it. and the microphone out the window. That's what you got to right. do. That's right. You have to throw us ah. out the window. <laughs> yes. There we go. Wait, Are you doing that podcasting oh, again? Oh. No, not at all. No. I don't know what you're talking about. Don't worry about it. <laughs> just the computer crashing out the window. <laughs> don't worry about that, honey. I just threw three grand out the window. No problem. It's fine. Yeah, it's, I was working extra 
green slip. Oh yeah, I never get those by the way. Uh, yeah, so that was that's my advice, Dixon. Good luck, congratulations, and uh, right back in and let us know how you do it and how you, how you doing and how you like it out there. It's it's uh, it can be challenging. I'm be I'll be straight up and honest with you, Dixon. Mm-hmm. It's you know some some people out there can be. Uh, um, not so happy, and sometimes you know they, and then you get the people who are really happy and go lucky, and those are the people that tend to tend to hang around and 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 work their way up in the business. So I don't know how I'm still here. And you know, I'm like, hey, I think that uh, you know Dana is obviously not the first person in the world, and not the last, to be a ramp worker, and uh, then uh, somewhere along the way, uh, a pilot. So correct, and. Lots of, lots of, lots of, lots of success to you, Dixon, and uh, look forward to hearing about your journey. In fact, I think we have yeah. uh, at least one, maybe more APG community members that were working the ramp and now are in training to uh, mm-hmm. be pilots. So, yeah. Let us know, Correct. as Dana said. Great. Thanks for the expert advice, Dana. Uh, I don't know. Oh, you're not off the hook yet, though, because we have more ramp stuff. This oh, is the ramp we? segment. Uh, Rob yes. writes, uh, I've been listening for about two years and eagerly await each episode. My dad was a Navy pilot, so I was exposed from my early years to aviation. Several of your episodes have touched on the ramp workers or ramp rats. And I know Captain Dana used to supervise the baggage handlers back in the day. So I wondered about the origin of the term since the only ramp I ever saw was the conveyor belt for loading and unloading bags. As it turns out, the term is a leftover from the seaplane days when the aircraft powered up the ramp to get to the airport. The ramp term is used by ATC, but not used by the FAA. Hmm, That's interesting. Uh, Apron is another term for ramp, of course, and that term makes more sense and is used by the FAA. The FAA's Surface Movement Guidance and Control System Advisory AC number 120-57A defines the apron as a defined area on an airport intended to accommodate aircraft for purposes of loading or unloading passengers or cargo, refueling, parking, or maintenance. Lastly, tarmac, T-A-R-M-A-C, is the material sometimes used for runways and aprons, but concrete is more typical. But calling the apron the tarmac is like calling the parking lot, or the car park for Nick, the concrete. Also, ask Dana, Captain Dana, if... He ever used the term found in the Urban Dictionary for baggage handlers. We always have to throw out a caution when you're referring to the Urban Dictionary. Okay, cover up the ears, mom and dad, if you have kids listening to the podcast. Okay, here's the term. Pitch bitch. Have you ever heard of that, Dana? I have never heard that term ever. (laughs) Ever. Ever. Uh, Steph, have you? Uh, No. No. I've heard baggage thumpers. Yeah, I can yep. see where it comes from, <laughs> yeah. but I think maybe that was just one person making an entry into the Urban Dictionary. Yeah, probably. Perhaps. Yeah, not a commonly used term. Um, attached are a couple of World War II photos of interest, probably especially to Captain Nick. Eleven Navy pilots, one was my dad, were temporarily temporarily assigned to the Army Air Corps in World War II in 1944 to support the invasion of southern France and were stationed in Corsica. They flew P-51C Mustangs that were brand new, and they were thrilled to be able to name their planes. My dad borrowed a 35mm camera from a bomber pilot to take these photos. Before he could return the camera, the bomber was shot down, and all perished in the crash. 
So my sister still has the camera. And then he has these pictures here and um, some uh, descriptions for why the, you know, what, what the name is, is, is uh, referencing and such. And they're all great photos, including the photo of his, of his, uh, do you say his dad? Um, yeah. Yeah. His dad. Uh, Val Gal was his dad's plain name named for his mom. Wow. Very cool. So obviously this is from Rob Snowden in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you, Rob, for sending these great photos in. That is definitely going to be something you're going to want to, um, refer to listener in the show notes. Please click on the link. It'll take you right to this item that we're looking at ourselves. The crew is looking at right now. Great photos, huh? Yeah. Fantastic photos. I was, I was just picking up on the Valgale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why does it say Valgale too? Um, uh, maybe there was more than one Valgale. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Valgale too. Interesting. The Presumably he, I'm sorry. Presumably he took, he was okay, obviously, but, uh, I don't know what happened to Valgale one. Yeah. I don't know. Really, really cool stuff. Awesome. So again, please refer to the show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, listening to the show, and I think you'll uh, enjoy them as much as we have. And thank you, Rob, again, for that. Anything else uh, do, that we didn't answer? No, we've never heard of that term, PB, um, and interesting <laughs> uh, information about ramp. I didn't know that it referred to the uh, seaplane uh, ramps. Interesting. No. Yeah, I didn't either. Okay. I mean, it's like saying you park your car and park your car, park your car in the driveway mm-hmm. and you drive on the parkway. Yeah. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Nope. Who was the Yay, guy that English, who was the guy that, um, the, uh, Yogi Berra, I think uh, was that one yeah, of his probably. famous, why do we park in the driveway and drive in the parkway? All right. Uh, let's continue on with Brian. He sent us some audio feedback. Hey, Captain Jeff and APG crew. This is uh, Brian from Tulsa. I want to start off by saying that I regret not being able to make the Tulsa meetup this time around. Um, I will definitely be at the next one, though. And uh, just have a quick question for you guys. We are leaving May in May. I think on the 9th, we're going up to Maine to visit family. Um, And I've got a six-month-old laptop that'll be going with us, my daughter. Um... And when I went to make the reservation, I chose seats on the left side and right side of the aircraft. And then I was uh, informed by people on forums and such that you need to call the airline to inform them that you're carrying a lap child as well. So I did. I called the airline. And what she did is all the seats that I had chosen on the left side of aircrafts for all of our flights, regardless of uh, aircraft type, she moved us over to the right side. Um, It was the same, you know, window and middle, but it was the right side instead of the left. So I'm wondering why that was, and I have a suspicion it might have something to do with oxygen masks, but my father-in-law and my dad are both AMTs uh, for Ajax, and they seem to think that the oxygen is the same on both sides of the aircraft, and they seem like somebody that would know. So I was wondering if you had uh, any insight into that and what your opinions were. And then uh, also... What are your tips for flying with a uh, lap child and infant? Um, being that this is my first time around, I'm kind of a little apprehensive about doing it and being that 
being that guy that's got a, a screaming child for, you know, however long the flight is. All right. Well, thank you guys for all you do. I appreciate it. And we'll talk to you Excellent soon. Excellent questions, Brian. And what I'm going to do, since he's leaving in just a couple of days, and I may not have the episode published by then, I'll try to take this little snippet that we're recording right now and send it directly to Brian. So he'll have our wonderful answer regarding uh, his questions. And uh, the first thing, um, obviously, everyone knows, Brian, that the right side of the aircraft, those little oxygen masks are a little bit smaller on the right side than they are on the left. They're better to fit around the uh, baby's... No, I don't know. Uh, is that I, because the airplane's heart yeah. is on the left side? Uh, is the airplane's body? Must be. Yeah. I don't know. Oh. Yeah. I think, you know, your, your relatives who are AMTs, uh, yeah, say, I think that Dana, right. I mean, there's no difference, uh, between no. the left side and the right side of the aircraft, as far as where you're sitting. Well, I'm not sure why they did that. I have no earthly idea why they did that. None. Yeah. So we can't help you out with that one, but what yeah. we can do is we can, can, we can give you some advice with, uh, traveling, with infants. And first of all, let me tell you, and I've had experience with this with three children of my own. Um, you, the, the noise, and this is not in just an airplane, but in church or any other public, uh, venue where, um, the sound levels are a little bit lower and you want to keep that low level as much as you can. Well, you're going to, you're going to think that when your child is making a lot of noise, crying or whatever else, that it's just something that everybody's focused on and everybody's wants to kill you because you can't keep your child quiet. Now, there might be some people out there that like that, that actually do think that. Uh, and we've seen instances of that on our show where people have been kind of rude toward not only the parents of the children, but also the children themselves. Remember the guy that actually hit a child? I think he was, a, no, yeah, it was a guy that actually from Atlanta and he spent some time in jail too, I think for it, um, actually, actually hit the child, the child. But anyway, uh, that, that's not very common. Don't, don't worry. Don't, don't be freaked out. I don't think anybody's going to hit your child, but I think that the sense that everybody is really irritated is like exaggerated in your, in your own mind. People, most people I think are very understanding. They understand that you can't control what a child's going to do and, and whether they're going to cry or not, but at least make an attempt. <laughs> That's the thing I think that irritates a lot of passengers is when the children are just crying or they're doing something very loudly or irritating other passengers around them. And the parents make zero attempt to stop that behavior. That's something that I think is a, a reasonable thing to be upset about. Um, but one of the things that you can do, obviously something to distract the child, some kind of a puzzle, some, some type of a, you know, something on a, a tablet or device or something like that. Is this a six-month-old? Oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah, they're not going <laughs> to forget uh, that Am part. I misremembering? Yeah, no, you're not. Uh, so okay. what would you say? Something to, to, to get to focus their attention on the fact that they're, you know, in an, away from the fact that they're in an airplane and this is all a new environment and they're hearing things that they don't, don't normally hear, um, et cetera. So you, probably not a lot to do uh, with a child a very young child, like an infant, but, um, I was going to say <laughs> my advice. Is, Do they still recommend, um, for very young children, um, giving them a bottle and take off and descent yeah, so that because you can, that's going, can equalize their air pressure, the pressure yes, in their ears. Yes. I was going to say chewing gum, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when they're a little bit sure older, when they're toddlers, 
or young children, uh, sometimes giving them chewing gum, will do the same thing that what Steph is referring to as far as equalizing pressure. And that they're usually okay when you're climbing. Yeah. But as you start descending and the the cabin pressure is changing in that direction, that's when. But it may also keep them a little more occupied and help lull them off to sleep, perhaps, if they're. Right. But I think for me, the bottom line is that, yes, you're going to be like just terrified that your child is going to disturb the other passengers. And I don't think it's as bad as you think it is. Uh, But do make an attempt and make sure that people know you're making an attempt to, you know, keep your infant quiet if they are crying or whatever. Um, And, uh, and as Steph said, you know, a a bottle or um, breastfeeding. Now that's, that's kind of a sensitive area, but if you can do it, if your if your wife is, breastfeeding, I'm sure there's a way to do it discreetly. And I think most people these days understand that, wouldn't you think, Steph? Um, you would think. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Good luck with that, I guess. You would think. Because we have had actually... we've had cut stories on yeah. the show where people have actually objected Should not even that. be an issue, but yeah. I'm just wondering about the extra mask. Isn't there one on each? There's an extra mask in each row. There's four, four masks in yeah. each row. But regardless of whether yeah. it's left or right. It's not on one side. Yeah. yeah. As far as and I know. Okay. They're all the same size. Yes. Maybe tomorrow I'll look in the airplane. Uh, let me uh, lower this thing, see what, how many masks we have up there. But I think it's the same on both sides, as far as I know. There should be one extra. One extra in each set. Yeah. But I mean, it, like, but equal, same yeah. Left yeah. or right, it shouldn't matter. Okay. It should not matter at all. Okay. Uh, any, th- any other advice that you all can think of? Let me look at the chat room to see if anybody is... Um... I have no kids, well, so I have no idea. I don't have kids either, but I actually agree with what Main Man Micah is saying. If you have the means to um, purchase a seat for your child at any age, um, I'm not a huge fan of the lap child under two policy that a lot of U.S. airlines have. Um for a variety of reasons, he's making the point about the child potentially being a, a projectile. Um, yeah. You know, I think it is a safety thing. If you put your child in a car seat in a car, I don't know why it shouldn't be the same for an airplane. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And, uh, Micah, a, a bottle, to... a bottle of bourbon in the, uh, in the, in the milk bottle is not a good, Oh no, wait, no, he's not saying a bottle. He's saying <laughs> a tablespoon. I said that. <laughs> no, I really didn't actually. <laughs> But I yeah. also I also understand that air travel is expensive and sometimes you need to get from point A to point B and it is allowed. So I would just say take whatever safety precautions that you can. Right. So. Okay. Danny, well, I, yep. Good. I'm sorry. Dana? I was going to say don't, there are some people that show up at the airport with their lap child expecting that there's going to be an empty seat possibly. Right. Yeah. Just to expect that you may potentially be carrying that child exactly. and probably will be carrying that child on your lap for the duration of the flight. So if that is not something that you were exactly expecting, um, yeah, it, it could happen. That's a good and point. Probably yeah. will. If you're going to have a lap child, you're not paying for the seat. Well, don't expect that they're going to give you the seat for nothing. Right. Good point. Okay. But I don't think Brian would think that. No, no, I don't think he's thinking that, but I'm, yeah. I no. I'm just Dana, putting that out there for the right. general public. Yeah, that's listening to this conversation. Very good. Any uh, anything else to add? Do you think? Nope. Okay. No. So hopefully I'll get that to you, Brian, before you leave on your trip. Uh, moving on, Greg. 
has a uh, subject that is very popular, especially with one of our community members. He works at a medium-sized Midwestern airport. The topic, actually not, because these are built-in ones, so I don't think she feels the same way about those, does she? Uh, the topic of air stairs comes up every now and then on the show, so I thought I'd pass along a photo of a 737 that comes through STL, St. Louis, pretty often. It's a new thir- 737 Boeing business jet. You can see it deploying the air stairs on the ramp of Signature Aviation in St. Louis this past February. Keep up the good work, Greg McFadden. Correction to my previous feedback on the 737. Oh, that was the first feedback, and then he sent another email to us. Uh, correction. Uh, it's registered to Boeing aircraft. It's not new, as previously stated. It seems to be 19 years old. Now my accuracy rating is back above 50%. Thanks, Greg McFadden. Whew. Well done, Greg. Yeah. Well done. Good recovery. It was, it was close there for a moment. <laughs> the thing does look pretty darn new, though. I mean, it must have a nice yeah. new paint job or something on it. Of course. Well taken care business, of. Business yeah. shit. They're going yeah. to take care of that. They got all regularly. the money. Make it all shiny. Yeah. I mean, wow. if you look out, if you look out in the street and you see a limousine parked next to a bus, which one do you think is going to be nice, polished, and shiny? The bus, of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll put his. Uh, Jeff's uh, expectations are not in line with reality. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I it's, think uh, my brain is just uh, the the older I get, it's it just uh, it, it's just limping along. All right, uh, Jim writes in. Uh, greetings, APG crew. As recently as this week, the topic of hypoxia was covered on the show. I was very pleasantly surprised to receive the attached announcement from our local FAA safety team. In a nutshell, local pilots will have the opportunity to, ex- to experience a hypoxia simulation. I'm sharing this in hope that other U.S. APG community members can check with their local FAA safety team to see if similar training is available to them. Keep up the great work. And here is the, uh, the article, the um, announcement from the FAA. Uh, FAA safety team, safer skies through education. A scheduled seminar meeting your notification preferences has, been, has had some changes. Below is a brief description of the modified seminar. Hypoxia, reduced oxygen, recognition training. And uh, this one happens to be in the Philadelphia, oh, right here where I am, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at Legacy Aviation, and seats are still available, at, at least when he received this. Uh, this is for Wednesday, May 15th. So if you're in the Philadelphia area and you're interested in attending this seminar about hypoxia recognition, um, check out the show note here. Again, that's on the 15th. And But he also mentioned, you know, if you're in the U.S., you should sign up for these things so that if something like this happens in your area, you should go to it because... Uh, Recognition of hypoxia is a could save your save your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a pretty interesting um, way that they do it. It is the oh, I lost what the acronym actually stands for: Portable Reduced Oxygen Training Enclosure. Um, so it's basically this portable room that they set up with some glass walls and doors, and they adjust the um, uh, oxygen levels down to different altitude or what you might find at different altitudes within that enclosure. And then they do have oxygen masks for you to wear when you start suffering the effects of hypoxia. I remember and when can they no did... longer carry on with the tasks given to you, such as counting backwards by three from 100 or doing simple. Uh, I can't even and... do that when I'm not hypoxic. 
I can, that's a hard one for me. By threes, I have I have trouble. Or, or do the alphabet yeah. backwards. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Um, so I was uh, thinking about what you were just saying um, in this P-R-O-T-E thing. I remember there was an incident once, instead of uh, oxygen, they were using laughing gas. <laughs> it didn't turn out very well. Yeah. Just kidding. What yes. was that, nitrous uh, oxide? Uh, it was a blast. Everybody was laughing their heads off. Uh, hmm. um, a little nitrous. <laughs> I've never had nitrous. Um, I have once. I have. Is it oh. as great as everybody says it is? No. No. Okay. Oh, I, oh, I, well, the, the big mistake the dentist's office made is they put me on it and then walked away. What happened so, in the meantime? <laughs> and they did that a few times. And? Because I'm really hard to get numb. And so, you know, with the, uh, with the, with the injections. Yeah. So, That's what she said. I turned, I turned the gas up. Oh my. And it was, oh my God. I was, I was, I was. So, but it was after you had already had some gas. Well, I continued to have it, you know, because it had so your ability you to judge how much more you might or might not need was. Yeah, it was was not at all impaired. It was impaired at yeah no impaired not judgment. At all. So I was the funniest guy on the planet at that moment, as far could, as you were concerned. <laughs> I could not stop laughing, and I kept on cracking jokes, and I had the whole place cracking up. They and they didn't even realize it. <laughs> yeah, they, much, they had no they idea. And they said, "Holy camoly, dude!" <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, oh my God, I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> but I didn't care about the procedure. That was the best part. That's the important thing. Yeah, that that is what. Yeah, just rip them all. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what you're doing right now. I, I mean, it's no kidding. The dentist can hit me with t- eight to 10 Novocaine shots and still not get me numb. Wow. It's crazy. It's crazy. That is crazy. And I, this is not with just one dentist. I was going to say, is this the same dentist over and nope, over again? No, nope, it's now happened with four different, three of three, three or four different dents, dentists. Your nerves are not where they're supposed to be then. I have no nerve. Oh, the nerve. Oh, the nerve. The nerve you don't have. Um, eight. This should be a quick one, I think. My name is Devin Porter. I live in the Houston area. I want to become a pilot. And I was wondering if you could point me in the right direction. Okay. If you're watching, Devin, this way. Up. Oh. All right. Let's move on to number nine. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> this <I'm> t- corner. <laughs> this corner over here. Uh, I'm 25 years old and I'm hoping to get my private license within the next year, but unfortunately, I don't know which school to go with. Now, I don't know if we have any specific recommendations for Devin Houston? in the Houston area, but maybe we do have some listeners. Houston, that might. you're a problem. And, and Houston's a big place. It's like one of there the biggest is. cities in the U.S., I believe. Um, and definitely in the top 10. Uh, so Devin, it kind of comes down to part 61 versus part 141. And what's the difference there? Make Steph? sure I'm getting those right there, Dana. Um, so part 141 is going to be more structured. Um, the hour requirement for private pilot training does come down some, but there is, um, it's just much more structured. There's certain, uh, um, checkpoints you have to hit and you'll be going to ground school and, and it's more like being in a, a school environment of a formal school environment part 61 which is what i did it's um, a little more freelance um, you kind of take things at your own pace um, the hour requirement is slightly more by five hours i believe in terms of the minimum number of hours that you would need for a private pilot license however that still varies greatly no matter which direction you go depending on when you're ready to take your check ride um, 
a lot of it just comes down to what type of student you are. So for me, um, I was working full time at the same time. I didn't have time for a more structured formal environment where I'd be required to be in class certain at certain times or, you know, be meeting certain check marks at certain times. Um, and it allowed me to do a lot of self-study as well, which is good for me, but might not be good for others. So <clears throat> my, my advice, Devin, is, is this, uh, first off, uh, this, the, the airport that's closest to you that has a good general aviation operation, if you're just looking to become a private pilot, uh, you know what Dr. Seth was saying is excellent advice, 61 versus 141. I, I would focus uh, more on what's closer to you that will enable you to spend more time at the airport and not be discouraged, you know, have to drive an hour through traffic or two hours through traffic to get there. Uh, so if you're just looking to do your private license, I would go meet the folks at the local airport. And generally speaking, there's usually more than one uh, flight school. So it's who you, who you go to and how you feel when you talk to them. And, you know, and the biggest thing is, is the quality of the flight instructor. Yeah. Um, you want it, someone that you get along with, that you exactly. like, and um, who's in tune with your learning style. Yep. And, and I hate to say this, but, you know, a lot of flight instructors are, you know, just building time to get out the door. So one, one of the things that you have to look at is if you are a, uh, you know, if you don't have uh, a, a consistent flight instructor um, to help you know, move you through, then that actually may cost you some time and money because if you have to go from flight instructor to flight instructor to flight instructor, you kind of have to start over. Now, the the advantage of a 141 program over 61 is that you're going to be in a structured program, so it almost doesn't matter as much with the flight instructor because it is a structured program but again there's personality issues and in and, and getting along with somebody so it's just like if you go to anything in in, in customer service uh, you know they should be there to help you out um and uh, don't try to uh, don't try to overthink um what what the person's trying to sell you because they are tr trying to sell you what their product is in their flight school and, you know, take a look at the quality of the equipment, take a look at the, you know, the track record of the flight school. And again, you know, that can all be obtained locally. Now, if you want to uh, move on professionally, you know, that's a whole different conversation we need to have. So I'd be interested to know that, that part of this question, because you just put in that you want your private license. So. Yeah. Well, staying on that same theme, uh, part 141 schools, Connor, you know, the ramp rat guy, uh, says it's Connor the ramp rat again. I've heard mm, people going to these big schools such as ATP, Embry-Riddle, like I said, before I'm going to a 141 school. And uh, like I said before, I'm going to a 141 school and can seem to only get about half of the tuition covered and the rest out of pocket. And that's around $5,000 plus dollars. And I'm wondering what would be better in the long run if it would be better to try and continue on in this 141 school or try to go for ATP. I don't know much about ATP, so maybe I can get some insight if ATP has loans that cover the cost of all ratings up to CFI, CFII, MEI, or would it put me more in, a, in financial trouble after I get out? Thanks. 
Dana? Well, Con- you know, Connor, I, my suggestion is, is what is your ultimate goal? First off, do you already have a college degree? If you have a college degree, then the fast track, if you want to become a, 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 a uh, an airline pilot, um, then I would go ahead and try to go for the fast track. Now, ATP is more likely uh, or something along, you know, a school along those lines. There are other ones out there are more likely to have financial financing options. And I don't think it'll put you in financial trouble unless there's a major downturn uh, in hiring. So uh, even even if there is a downturn on the hiring, you know, you know, flight instructors are still going to be needed for some time because there's been such a drain on them anyways that, you know, you can certainly, you won't be making big money uh, as a flight instructor, but certainly you can, you know, make ends meet. Uh, but I would pick the fast track because as we've talked about before in the, in the, uh, in the uh, podcast is, you know, everything's about seniority in this business. So the faster you can get your foot into the door to a, you know, 121 carrier and move your way up through you know, the regionals or, or flying corporate, then, you know, you get to the majors. That's, that's when you definitely, you know, your financial troubles, as long as you keep you know, your nose clean and, and, and fly, fly a good airplane and, and stay out of trouble, then you, uh, your trouble, financial troubles should come to an end. Um, and be able to pay back those those loans. So that's just my thought on that. Yeah. Conversely, uh, if 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 it's more of a matter of even with uh, tuition assistance and loans not being able to cover the costs, I would say maybe you do want to look at Part sixty one because then it's really more pay as you go. Um, and speaking from personal experience, you can still get through your ratings relatively quick. Depends on how much time you have available to set aside the things. And then looking at the stuff like Dana mentioned before, in terms of getting in with an instructor who's a good match for you, because you'll get through the requirements a lot more quickly if you're working efficiently during the time that you have um, and potentially cheaper because you're spending a little less time. And, regard, and regarding the, um, you know, the, getting the ratings um, or getting the college degree, as as uh, Dana mentioned, I would say now, you know, in the past, I wouldn't have, have said this, that I think it's more important to get all the ratings and everything, get your foot in the door, get hired by a regional, because I think mm-hmm. most regionals now don't require college degrees, right, Dana? Correct. None of them do. Okay, none of them do. Now you're getting, you know, the good experience, the you know, racking up the time uh, to be qualified for the airlines. And at that point... If the majors are still requiring college degrees, and I think at some point they're probably going to say, eh, it's not so important anymore. Uh, but if they are, then when you're at the regional, uh, I know it might be tough, but you know, start working on your college degree yeah. at that point. If, if you're that motivated, it's certainly something that's within anyone's reach. Yes. Yeah. And you've got to, you, you would definitely have to be disciplined, disciplined mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just know that if you right now in the current hiring environment, if you don't have a college degree, you're not competitive. I've got my you know, real good buddy, Dave, that has, you know, 20 years at the regionals instructor pilot. And, and, you know, the list goes on of all of his achievements and he still couldn't get to even barely, he only got one interview at a major and they harped on the fact that he didn't have a college degree. So, uh, you know, it, it, the other thing is, is, you know, you're, you're better off in the world in general, if something should ever happen uh, with the aviation end of things, medical or whatever else uh, that could possibly uh, end that. And, you know, that avenue of, of uh, a career for you, a career path. So it's always better to have a college degree. I agree with you, Jeff, to a certain extent. However, um, and I agree that, you know, it's good to get the flying, get that going, but it's going to take uh, quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of work 
and the way that they're hiring right now, uh, he, he, you may be at a major within three years. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you take four years to get a college degree, you know, right. what, what's the hiring going to be like then? And then, then you're going to start your flying training or, you know, I yeah. don't know. It's, I, I agree. It's dude. If you can, if you, if there's nothing hindering you from flying right this moment, um, fly and work on the college degree once you're, once you have Money. that seniority. Number. I mean, I realize he didn't really ask that Money. question. What? Money. Yes, that's what's money. hindering him right yeah. now is yeah, money. Right, right. Yeah, I know. That's, <laughs> that why, was his that's big why I would, I would right not. I would not. Um, I would prioritize certainly. Yeah, as I said, Connor really didn't mention the. Wasn't really asking for that advice, but we gave yeah. it to you anyway. Yeah, that's our free advice. Yeah, exactly. How much you paid for this podcast? Uh huh. Nothing. Um, we're going to skip around a little bit. We're getting close to the end. And I think some of these, I think it would be best for Nick to be present uh, to help us answer. So I would really like to make sure we get to this one. I think I thought it was pretty funny. Um, Deanna, you know, she sent us some audio feedback about her uh, trip to Atlanta and her time in the simulator and such. Oh, and yes. um, <laughs> and uh, she obviously has a very good sense of humor. Uh, 16. Um, if it isn't too soon after my previous feedback, I thought I'd share my experience and being an emotional support human, trademark, you put a little <laughs> trademark sign, emotional support human, for a fearful flyer. I don't recall hearing anything about fear of flying recently, so I thought it might be interesting. I recently went on a business trip, and my coworker who went with me had never flown before and was a little nervous about it. I talked to her about it, what to expect from TSA to boarding to the actual flight. I explained what the takeoff and landing felt like. And that the flaps made a sound when extended. She did great and actually enjoyed flying. We had beautiful views of the clouds and she was amazed at how pretty it was up there. The only, the only thing I forgot to mention was that the landing gear made a sound when it was put down. And I saw her eyes get really big when it happened. But she was fine when I told her it was normal. We had a nice smooth ride to our destination. On the way back, naturally, the instant I left to use the bathroom, we encountered some mild turbulence and I was worried she'd be scared. However, she reported that since no one else seemed freaked out, she figured it was okay. On our final leg home, we encountered a crosswind on takeoff, which tried to kick us around a bit, but the pilot handled it beautifully, and my friend was okay. Since she, was, uh, she, had, she has faced her fear, she realizes how much the world has opened up and wants to start planning trips. How do you handle fearful passengers? Do you often encounter people who are so fearful they can't be calmed? What do you do now? Um, before we get onto that, I, I guess I should say the feedback that she sent in right before that one. Maybe I should have uh, read this one first, but I, this is the one that got me chuckling. Um, she said, "This isn't necessarily feedback you have to talk about on the show." Yeah, we're going to talk about it, Deanna, because it was funny. But I thought it was kind of funny. I'm taking a trip to the conference with a coworker, the above forementioned, and or the above mentioned. And it is, and it's her first time on an airplane. She's a little scared, so I talked to her a bit about what turbulence is like and what sensations to expect during takeoff and landing. We aren't seated together, unfortunately, but I'm hoping the gate agent can help us change since I'm her emotional support human. Trademark. Anyway, she wondered what our aircraft looks like, so I told her to Google image search the types we were on. I later Googled it myself, and this was one of the first images. I think it will help a lot. 
<laughs> you gotta see this photo. That was funny. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so she Google obviously they're uh, on an RJ. What is that? A nine hundred, seven hundred, something like that. A CRJ. That's not a nine hundred. It's it's like a CRJ seven hundred maybe. Seven hundred maybe. Seven hundred, I think. Yeah, and um, <laughs> it's a nice picture of the the wing, the left wing and back uh, toward the engine and the and the tail. And uh, there's a there's a passenger apparently uh, in the midst of uh, running away from the airplane mm-hmm. because if you look at the left engine, it is uh, there are flames coming out of the on intake, fire and there's there are flames fire on, the on the ground. ground. <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah. Here, Google this and uh, it'll make it's you feel help. better. It'll help a lot. <laughs> That's what I thought was so funny. Um, anyway, so. How do you handle fearful passengers? And do you often encounter people who are so fearful that they can't be calmed? What do you do? I don't know. But I guess you have to use psychology, right, Steph? Um, I use this every day at my job. It has nothing to do with flying. Um, most people are fearful about the injection that I'm about nah. to give them, <laughs> including Jeff. <laughs> I, I find that, um, you know, explaining exactly what you did, Deanna, explaining what they're going to experience before they actually get there, trying to lay the the scene for them, tell them what sensations to expect, um, reassure them that, you know, my job is to make sure that it's as comfortable for them as possible. Um, and if I do my job well, it should be somewhere in a comfortable range for them. Um, as I'm actually doing the procedure, this is a little different than flying, but I think you did it. You handled it wonderfully as an emotional support human. Um, you just, reinforce that you reemphasize what's going on, what's happening, what you're going to feel next. Um, and it's the very rare person that I can't get through a procedure. Now I have had people who are so fearful that they can't be calmed. And, um, perhaps those are the people, the passengers you just don't take flying that day. If they can't be calmed down enough to get on an airplane, they probably shouldn't be on the airplane. Same thing goes true for a procedure in medicine. Um, if they can't be calmed down about it, we shouldn't be doing the procedure. I've seen passengers get on the airplane and all of a sudden they're leaving and I think, well, what's going on? And I said, they, they tried, they are very, yep. they have a lot of anxiety and they were given it the the best try they could. And they were and just sitting just there. Couldn't do it. Nope. Yep. Said, yep. Oh, nope. Can't do it. And I'm in those cases you just reassure the person because a lot of times they're embarrassed, um, that they weren't able to do something that they felt like maybe they should be able to get through and you say, no, look, this is, this is fine. Like it doesn't have to be today. You now, occasionally in the future. I'm sorry. Bad. Bad, bad with my, uh, my bad. Everything is. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it's you not now. your fault. It's, it's my hotel fault. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I have had instances where like a flight attendant will come in, you know, into the cockpit and say, Hey, I have so-and-so here and they're a little anxious about flying and everything else. And I'm sure Dana, you've experienced this as well. And yes, what I usually say is, look, you know, so I, first of all, I say what kind of experience I've had. I flew in the Air Force or I've, I've been flying for the last 30, almost 38 years. I have over 20,000 hours of, of time uh, in an airplane. And if I thought that this was something that was dangerous or that would risk my life and would uh, not allow me to come back to my family, my wife and my children, I wouldn't do it either. But mm-hmm. obviously – I feel like this is this is what I do, you know, almost every day, and um, you know I understand your anxiety, 
but because this is probably something that you are not used to doing or experiencing. And then I find also, as, as you mentioned, uh, Steph, that like explaining to them what is going on, I think knowledge for most people that are, have anxiety, I think knowledge is something that does help for, calm people. For most people, it's very yeah, helpful. Not everybody. <laughs> not everybody. I mean, there are some fears that truly people cannot get past. And right. it's it's always a little surprising to me because I like to think that I can probably get past almost anything with the right explanation, the right support. Um, you know, there aren't too many things I'm terribly fearful of. There's a few. What? Um, yeah. Hmm. I don't like You'll unprotected have... heights. Not... Uh, unprotected heights? Like over the edge of like something standing like, on the edge of a mountain without not, a without anything preventing me from hitting the ground below. now if you had a uh, parachute on your back you probably would feel better i'd be less yeah fearful of it yes no base jumping then that's not really something i'm interested in yeah no um but so i don't like those things but it doesn't mean that i haven't been near the edge of a mountain um usually on skis um but it's something you just have to say, look, this is no different than when you just, and it's really the, for me, it's the long distance view of something very straight down. I'm like, you're just on level ground right here. This is no different than level ground anywhere else. Just because if you took one more step forward, it would not go well. Doesn't <laughs> mean that you have to die. take that step forward or are going <laughs> yeah. to take that step forward. Right. So that's the, that's the rationalization part of it. Um, but I, you know, this year for the very first time I had someone have a, um, panic attack to the point of uh, causing them to have a, a vasovagal reaction and pass out before we ever got to the point of having the procedure or getting anywhere near doing the procedure. Uh, so that was a, a new one. Um, and I, I'm only chuckling just because it was it was very surprising to me. I'm not certainly not laughing at the the person or the patient because it was definitely a very serious thing for for them. So, and then they, I mean, they, if I recall correctly, this person felt felt terrible. But I mean, again, you just have to. Is it possible sure for that. somebody like that to go under like a general anesthesia or something? Yeah, like? and that's that's well, not general anesthesia, but in those cases, I do send them to have the procedure done with an anesthesiologist who can who's qualified to give more uh, sedation than I am, okay. and I don't give any sedation. So, because she mm, likes yes. giving pain. It's all about no. the backstabber. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a whole lot to say about that, but that is this is not the. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're joking. The, oh no, no, know I, I know. I know, I know. I mean, those are the cases where sedation is is appropriate, but it's certainly not appropriate for the vast majority for the procedures I do. Yeah, you you know, Jeff, you you know, and, and not change the subject back to what we were talking about. Yes, sorry. Uh, no, no, back no. To flying. no. Back to flying. Uh, you know, I find that in that in those situations, when the captain comes and talks or or addresses the person, it tends to ease them a little bit. Um, my favorite saying saying is, you know. My mother's favorite son's on board the aircraft. That's me. And well, that's not really true. But anyways, um, <laughs> don't you don't tell him that part. Well, that's not. No, right. I say no. I, I, her only son's on the airplane, so you know I'm going to uh, I'm going to you know do everything to take care of you, and and it's very safe. You drove here, uh, and that's far more dangerous than it is to get on the airplane, and it's a very safe way to travel. And you just talk to the people, and then they see that you're you're a human being, you're that you're down to earth, and generally. Speaking, I've had very few instances where people have ever wanted to get off the airplane. Well, they see me when I get up and make my PA. They all want to get off the airplane. But no, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, get took, off. I, I yeah, tried. Get, you know, then I saw Dana. I got to get out of here. Got to get out of here. So, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's comforting to them. And uh, I, I haven't, uh, haven't had anybody get off my airplane, actually. 
Interestingly, there are a lot of people out there. Oh, I'm sorry. Are we, are we back in sync? Yes, you're back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interestingly, there are a lot of people that listen to our show who do have moderate anxiety or worse. And the reason why they're listening, and, and you're listening to us, me speaking to you right now, uh, we know who you are, uh, that they listen to the show and they've, they've sent us feedback saying so, that listening to the show, learning about flying and the sounds we're going to hear and understanding all of this, what they consider magic, but then they realize it's not magic, it's it's physics and mechanical engineering and all kind, you know, that kind of stuff, aerodynamic engineering. And also the fact that hearing us talk about things about not only just flying, but our lives they, and makes them realize, Oh, we're regular people too, for the most part. And you know, definition of regular. <laughs> exactly. yeah, let's, let's redefine that. Please. Okay. Let me use some air quotes when I say regular or normal people, but uh, you know, we're, we're like just their neighbors or the people they know at church or whatever group they happen to be in and they go, you know, or the people they work with and they go, okay, they're okay. And they do this all the time. So it must not be so bad or so mm-hmm. unsafe. And that really helps a lot of people. And so for the, all of you out there listening to my voice right now, you know, we, we we're glad you're there listening. We're hoping that uh, you'll learn something about this flying thing and also be entertained by our, our banter. Indeed. And absolutely. Okay. With that, we're getting awfully close to our three hour point. So we're going to go ahead and put a, put an end to this madness on this show. Episode 374 recorded on the 6th of May, 2019. And uh, we're going to tell you to go to our website, airlinepilotguy.com. It's a great place to learn about the crew and the community. Um, Let's see what else we have merchandise, coffee fund information, plane tales, uh, a dedicated page for that. We have the APG library uh, who is uh, uh, Tiffany is the one that uh, uh, manages that. If you're into reading great works of fiction and nonfiction related to aviation and what else? Well, a lot of more, a lot more stuff there. So check it out. Airlinepilotguide.com. And we're also on social media. Ooh, we're back to the formal I knew social medias. Be impressed with that. I was. Or but... the social meds. <laughs> <laughs> I just I couldn't help myself. that every time. <laughs> I know. I know. Let me help you. I'll move on here. Okay. For the social media or social meds. I don't really. Whichever one you prefer. It's I fine by it. me. She says it all the time when we're not uh-huh. on there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I'm hip. I'm cool. It's yeah. Cool. She is. <laughs> you can head over to twitter.com find us at APG crew. We're all there. Find our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of the page, interact with us in 280 characters or less your choice. And if you would like to be a little bit more verbose, head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy, lots of community interaction going on there. People sharing aviation related stories and events and, uh, we're there too. So hope to see you on the social meds slash social medias. Yes. Is it a plural thing? I don't know. Okay. When you make it up, I guess you can make it whatever sure. you want. Uh, let's see. We're also on Slack, and Hillel is here to tell us about that. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. 
To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right, and also a big round of applause and thank you to our producer, Liz Piper, in Toronto, Ontario. Thank you, Liz. And also thank you to all those who show up each and every week to be in our live audience when we record. Uh, our, our great chat room people, very dedicated and definitely way below normal people um, <laughs> that are uh, subpar, hanging out. Subpar. Redefining the subpar. definition of normal. <laughs> subpar. Yeah. No, they're, they're truly wonderful people. They might be your neighbor. Yeah. I know all of them. You never know. They're, they're awesome. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you should uh, you know subscribe or follow us on Twitter and Facebook and uh, get the app. Oh, I forgot to mention that. We have an app on uh, iOS and Google Play. And uh, if you turn on the uh, push notifications, I'm not sure if it's still working or not, but you can uh, get notified when we're recording the show and when shows are released and all that kind of jazz. So um, if you have a chance... If your push notifications stop working, delete the app and then re-download it because that seems to reset whatever. Oh, okay. Because that happens to mine. Good stuff. Not infrequently. Okay. And uh, But if you have a chance to join us while we're recording live, you should because... Uh, the folks that are in the chat room, even though I give them a bad time, are really great people, and uh, they always have a good time, regardless of what we're doing here on the show, and uh, you should join them. I think you'll get a kick out of it. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Hasta la vista, baby. Good day.